Hello, people of the way. Blessings in Jesus. Uh, if you have your Bible, please open up to Mark chapter 6, the book of Mark chapter 6. We continue our study through the New Testament. Now, remember what's happened so far, where Jesus, where he goes in and he speaks openly and plainly, except he starts to speak in parables. But then what he does is he further explains the parables to the disciples. And, you know, this reveals what he also tells us about the heart of men, because where, you know, Jesus would speak. But then when he speaks, where everyone hears him, and it's at that point when people have a choice to make, hearing the words of Jesus, and then people have a choice to make. And, you know, in looking at these studies in Mark chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and here we are in chapter 6, we also see what the Lord reveals to us is what happens in the pneumos, in the spirit realm. And, you know, there are other things at play, both good and bad. And we see influences of Satan and the demonic realm because they don't want anybody to know about the truth of God's holy word. You see, and so Jesus speaks and it's like that nest or the, the, the net is being cast out, you see, and the net is being cast out. But who has ears to hear? And when you look at the pneumos in the spirit realm, you see, wow, there's something really going on here. It's straight up warfare. And, you know, Jesus would speak in these same words that Jesus spoke. They would instigate a response where, you know, some would laugh. They hear the words of Jesus and some people would laugh. Some people would scoff and ridicule and reject him. But then some would be curious. They want to know more and they want to hear what Jesus has to say. And then some would follow him, you know, in order to hear more. But then we look a little bit closer and we see a little circle, a more intimate circle, an intimate bubble, if you will. And it's in this bubble where Jesus, he further explains things. You see, remember the things that were revealed to the disciples? Very important to see where Jesus would speak. Remember, he'd go into synagogue and he would speak, but then the people would reject him. But then he has his followers and people walk with him. But then, you know, you see a, a, a little tiny bubble too, where there's the 12 disciples and how he would explain things at a deeper level. And it depended on intimacy, you see. And that's where we see this depth of knowledge. And, you know, this isn't difficult for us to understand because we see this in church service. You see, where you see the more the depth, the smaller the bubble. The more the depth, the smaller the bubble. Now, before we begin our study, I want to say something really quick to the new believer and the believer who hasn't yet matured deeper in Christ. Now, let's just say, for example, you and me. We observe a campus of education. And on this very large campus, we observe an area of buildings and play areas, and it's for the preschoolers. And on the same campus, we see another area that's for the kindergartners. And on the same campus, we see another area, another building structure that's for elementary. And then we see another area all on the same campus. Remember, it's a huge campus. And then we see the middle school area and then the high school area and then the college area and then the area of, you know, higher university, higher academia. And we don't end there. Say after there's the warfare area where we gain instruction on exactly that straight up warfare, fighting tactics, gear, equipment, skill and usage, squad movements, team movements, logistics, command and signal. 
And it's a very large campus, but it houses multiple levels of learning, multiple levels of training. Remember the rugby match from our study in Romans, in the book of Romans? If you're listening for the first time, go back and listen to our study through the book of Romans. Very important to understand the rugby match. I mean, the example we gave in the, <laughs> in the rugby match. But so say you and me, we observe this very large campus and we see, wow, there's an area for preschoolers, but then there's an area for straight up like warfare and tactics and all kind of logistics. And wow, it's like, this, this is quite the, the learning place. This is quite the campus. And it's all housed in one campus, accommodating to very high levels of growth and maturity and becoming deadly. The good deadly, not the bad deadly, the good deadly. And see, and while also having formula, formula and understanding formula, that special recipe of righteousness, this is what you look for in a church. This is what you look for in a church where you can be a brand new believer and drink beautiful, beautiful, beautiful milk, but you're not going to stay at milk. You know, you're going to eat the spiritual Cheerios. You know, as your spiritual teeth start to form, you're going to eat your spiritual Cheerios and then you're going to eat your spiritual toast and then you're going to eat your spiritual little chicken nuggets, you see, and then you're going to eat your spiritual chicken sandwich, you see, and then in the course of time, we're going to be eating spiritual pork chops, straight up spiritual ribeyes, you see, and then we're going to turn deadly, the good deadly, not the bad deadly, the good deadly. And you see, what happens is a lot of new believers and baby believers, they don't understand this. And so, I mean, even mature believers, so-called mature believers, even they don't understand this because, you know, some churches will absolutely get you to preschool level and some churches will get you to kindergarten level and some may even get you to the elementary level, but we have to look for the full package. You see? It's just like the campus we gave her. It's like, wow, you know, this campus is a big campus. I got the preschoolers, got, you know, the kindergartners, the elementary, middle school, high school, you know, a college, you know, university level. And then people think, okay, that's it. No, 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 no. There's more. And then there's like the straight up deadly level where you learn straight up warfare. You see, hand-to-hand -hand combat, you know, fighting skills. And when we say hand-to-hand -hand combat, we're speaking spiritually. Because remember, as New Covenant believers, we're not in the Old Covenant. As New Covenant believers, we're not in the, we are, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal in nature. They're supernatural. We're spiritual fighters, you see? And it's very interesting when you see Paul, you know, Paul would go into town and he would speak like, Whoa, like, whoa, he's so bold. He'd, he'd go into synagogue straight up in the hornet's nest. And he would go and prove from the, from, from the scrolls that Jesus is the Messiah. You see? And then what happens is that he's like, wow, you know, he's so bold. He's so bold. And then you go outside and, oh, he's getting arrested. He's like, okay, let's, is he going to be as bold as he is in speech? Is he going to be as bold with his fists? No, he straight up takes the chains. He goes to jail. You know, does he fight with the jailer? No, he worships the Lord. You see, when the jailer wanted to commit suicide, he says, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. And he tells him about the Lord and the jailer becomes a Christian. You see, the prisoners become Christians. It's very beautiful to see when you understand formula and you read the Bible understanding formula. It's like, whoa, this is, this is beautiful to see our family of faith. Old Testament, New Testament, heirs of Abraham, as promised to Abraham by the Lord, heirs of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. Remember our studies? 
And so there are churches who will get you, you know, to the elementary level. They'll get you to the preschool. They'll get you to kindergarten. They'll get you at these very low levels of understanding. And it seems good. I mean, if you're a baby believer, I mean, you're like, wow, you know, this is milk. This is milk. But there's a problem. What happens when Christians, believers, they're on milk and they have a steady diet of milk, but they stay at milk? That's not good. That's straight up arrested development. And that's what we see in Corinth. And it's done by the uh, defunct teachers, the defunct pastors, the defunct elders. You see, we have to look for the full package. And, you know, you're not going to find depth. You're not going to find, you know, the large campus that we give in our example from preschooler all the way to straight up deadly warrior. You're not going to find that with the mega church. You're not going to, you're going to find milk at the mega church. I mean, you know, if it's milk, I mean, depending on, you know, what their doctrine, it might be poisonous milk, you know, very important to understand formula, but understand that the more the depth, the smaller, the bubble, the more the depth, the smaller, the bubble, very important. And so don't forget in the gospels where we see thousands of people following Jesus, multitudes and multitudes of people following Jesus, that with persecution and tribulation that he goes through. Jesus, his followers become zero, you see. But in the last days, thousands follow Jesus and fewer abide in Jesus. And with our persecution and our tribulation, it's both the followers and abiders will also dwindle in numbers. These are the signs that our Lord told us about. He told us. He tells us what to look for. He tells us about the seasons. He tells us the roadmap. He tells us the road signs, things to look for. And for you and me to know that redemption draws near. Very important to understand what the Bible teaches. And so we begin our study here in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Here we are in verse 1. Then he went out from there and came to his own country. So don't forget here, Jesus, he was born in Bethlehem, but raised in Nazareth. Very important. And we stress this because there are mockers who cite certain impossibilities with Bethlehem. And they're right in the aspect of impossibilities with Bethlehem. But we have to move the needle to Nazareth. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth. So Jesus returns to Nazareth. And we see here in verse one, he came to his own country and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this with what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? They were straight up astonished. They were blown away. And so here we are in synagogue. On the Sabbath, again, now this is something that we already studied in chapter 3, remember, not too long ago. If you're a new listener, go back and listen to our study through Mark chapter 1 and get yourself caught up here to Mark chapter 6. Very important to understand. We've all, we, here in chapter 6, we already identify, you know, there's a problem, what's happening here in synagogue. And go back and listen to our study in chapter 3 and you're, you're going to understand. And so here we are in synagogue and people are asking these questions among themselves. What, what, what is this wisdom? What is this that he speaks? Where did he get this? And understand these higher levels of learning of, you know, the Torah and the prophets. It's reserved for the religious establishment. 
And Jesus didn't attend their schools. You see, he didn't go to their learning regiment. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't raised up in, in that type of training as they were now, you know, and, and so the people they're asking, you know, like straight up, like, what is this that he speaks? What, you know, what wisdom is this, which is given to him? Where did he get these things? And so they continue asking more questions in verse three. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Very interesting. They were offended at him. And so you look at the family of Jesus in the ways of Adam, and we remember chapter 3. Remember chapter 3 with his mother and brothers, where Jesus asked, who are they? You see? And it wasn't to be mean. You know, the people were saying, you know, Jesus, here's your, here's your family. Here's your mother. Here's your brothers. And Jesus was straight up, you know, who are they? Who are they? He says, you are my mother. You are my brothers. Because he was speaking of the better family, the family of faith. He didn't say that, you know, who are they? He didn't say it to be mean. And it could be seen as mean, depending on the heart. It was said because of something greater, and that is the family of faith. Understand that after the birth of Jesus, Mary had more babies. You see, the first of her womb was of the Holy Spirit. It's very important to understand that she had more babies. You know, Mary and, and Joseph, they had more babies, but first of her womb was of the Holy Spirit, you see. And so now we see that his sisters in the ways of Adam, they're in synagogue. They're in synagogue. And these are things that the, the religious establishment, they're, they're posing these questions. In verse 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And look, his sisters are here with us, you see. And so they were offended at him. Very interesting. Now, as a little side note, in, in synagogue, the males and females were separate in synagogue. There was like a special area for women. Very important to understand. And these are things that we see in the Old Testament. We're going to look at more in the Old Testament in our studies through the Old Testament. Not so soon. This is probably like, you know, two or three years down the road, you know, Lord willing. But, you know, that's what would happen in synagogue is there would be a separate area for the women. And so there these doubters, the things that these, the religious establishment, they start to take notice. Isn't this the carpenter? And they're straight up offended. We see in verse three. So they were offended at him. But why? Is what Jesus was saying, was it wrong? Or are they offended because they don't measure to the stature of the religious establishment? Now, I want to say something to the blue-collar workers that are listening. The blue-collar workers whom I love, the laborers. Have you ever been among the so-called learned class? And you're with the so-called learned class and they make you feel like dirt because of their so-called knowledge? You see, let's say the extent of your formal education is high school and high school only. Maybe it's only middle school and maybe even elementary school. And because of circumstances, maybe no school, but because of circumstances, circumstances, you enter the labor market, you know, without formal education. You start doing like the blue collar work, you know, heavy, heavy labor. But then there are those who were able to continue. They could continue with formal education, you know, largely because of wealth and the financial ability and means to do so. And they went on with their education and you did not. Now, let me tell you something. 
That's nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing at all. It is nothing to be ashamed of. And I've had these conversations with people where it's like, man, you know what? I'm really dumb. You know, they say, I'm really stupid. You know, I, I didn't go to I didn't go to college. I didn't go to university. And like, you know, I, I just, you know, I work with my hands and, you know, the sweat of my brow. And I'm just not smart like these people. Listen, you don't don't be ashamed. Look at university, you know, for me, what I see the highest concentration of stupidity, it's with the formal, the formally educated people, because they straight up call, you know, men, women and women, men, and they're like straight up crazy. The highest concentration of stupidity is often found with higher academia. And so for the blue collar worker, it's like, you know, maybe you stopped your formal education. Maybe there is no formal education. You see, maybe you stopped in elementary, maybe you stopped in middle school, high school, maybe a little college, but don't be ashamed. Some of, for me, some of the most beautiful people I know and wise people I know, Christians in the faith, they don't have an education past high school. And for some, some stopped even sooner. Very, very beautiful people of faith. You see? And so what happens, Jesus is in synagogue and he's speaking. And the religious establishment, they're like looking around like, what? You know, did, did, did you see him in school? Did you, did you, you know, looking at the other guy, you know, did you, did he go to school, did, did, did formal education and training with you? Was he with you? Was he with you? And they're like, no, no. And then they're straight up like offended. Like this guy is, he assumes that he can teach us or the learned class. We went to school. We went to training. We are Levites. We are Kohanim. Remember, we're in synagogue on the Sabbath. But, you know, we are Levites. We are Kohanim. What are they even doing there? Remember our study from chapter 3? And so you have these, like, you know, the the the, the audacity of this, the, the religious establishment. And it's like the arrogance of the religious establishment. And it's very important to understand that, you know, the, 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 the highest concentration for me in my observation, the highest concentration of foolishness and blindness is with higher academia. Because what happens with higher academia, what happens is they place their trust in logic and intellect. You see, they place their trust in the seen world and what they observe with their eyes. You see, but the circumcised of heart, we walk by faith. We walk by faith. And consider this arrogance in the synagogue. He's just a carpenter. He's just a carpenter. Did, did, did he go to school with you? Did he go to school? Did he go to academia with you? Did he go to higher learning with you? Everybody's like, no, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And they were astonished. Like, what is this that he, what is this wisdom that he speaks of? And they were astonished, but then it gets to offended. They were offended. Who do, he presumes to teach us? He presumes to, he can instruct us? And, you know, we're, we're Levites, you see? And it, he's just a carpenter. His sisters, they're here with us in synagogue. And yet he speaks of the law and the prophets, but where did he get this from? He doesn't even have the degrees and the certificates like we do. We are the learned ones. 
We are the intellectuals. We apply logic to our understanding. You see? Him? He's just a carpenter. Just picture the arrogance of the so-called learned ones. You see? And so we see in verse 4, But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. And this is something that the remnant, we have to get very accustomed to this as we get further and further in the last days. Don't expect honor. Don't expect to be liked in your own house, with your own family, and in your own community. You see, because the ways of Adam are incongruous with the ways of Christ. Remember our studies through Peter's letters and John's letters and the letters of James? Remember how the things of this world are at enmity with Christ? And so here, Jesus, he's being rejected in synagogue, in synagogue. The high priest in the order of Melchizedek is being rejected. And if these, if the religious establishment, if they did have eyes to see, they would be bowing down and worshiping him. But they're blind. They're blind. He's just a carpenter. Where does he get this wisdom from? Does he presume to teach us? Does he presume to educate us? Where did he go to school? Where did he get his training from? We're Levites, you see. And if they had eyes to see, they would be worshiping him. Now I want to say something really quick to those who presently call Jesus a prophet and a prophet only. Because there are many religions that call Jesus a prophet. And if that's you, if you're listening, you're not a Christian. But if you're listening and you're like, you know what? Oh, my religion calls Jesus a prophet. You're in a religion that calls Jesus a prophet. And let me tell you something. You do well. You do well to acknowledge something good about what he says of himself. Yes, a prophet. But let me ask you a question. Why have you stopped acknowledging his words about himself when there's more? Yes, a prophet, but also son of man, also son of David, also son of God. You see? And I've had these conversations with people of many different religions, not Christianity. Oh, yeah, he's a good prophet. He's just a prophet. He's just a prophet. He's just a prophet. Oh, yeah, good prophet. He says this. Oh, yeah, nice, nice prophet. But why stop there? If you're listening and you're in one of these religions that acknowledges Jesus as a prophet, my question to you is, why stop there? Why acknowledge what Jesus says of himself as a prophet? Why stop there? Why not acknowledge what is also written? Son of God. So if you're listening and that's you and you're in one of these other religions, you see, don't stop heeding Jesus because he says more. Heed him in the better way and receive him as Lord and Savior, you see. And if that's you, you're in one of these other religions, whatever it is. Oh, yeah, Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. No, no. He says more. Son of God. The question is, do you believe? 
Do you believe? And if that's you, and you're like, you know what? I think I believe. I've been I've been listening for a couple weeks. I've been listening for a couple months. And you know what? I believe. Well, if that's you, you hit pause. You listen to the message, how to commit your life to Christ. And you straight up, you do that right here, right now. You commit your life to Christ. You become my brother. You become my sister. You come back, you listen, and we continue our journey through the scriptures. We continue our journey to paradise because that's precisely where we're going. Paradise. And the way is narrow, but the Lord guides us. And so here with Jesus, people have been following him, multitudes, crowds, but in his own hometown, Nazareth. Remember, born in Bethlehem, but then, you know, raised in Nazareth. In his own hometown, he's rejected. We're the intellectuals, they say. He's in synagogue. We're the intellectuals. He's just a carpenter. Now, look what happens in verse 5. Now he could do no mighty work there. Whoa. He could do no mighty work there. Wow. Look what happens to the learned class and the intellectuals as a result of their doubt and unbelief and lack of faith and their blindness. Look what happens. You say, okay, that's that's on them. No, 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 no. Nazareth suffers. The entire town wasn't in synagogue. But Nazareth suffers as a result, as a result of the learned class and the intellectuals with their logic and intellect. You see, coverings matter. Coverings matter. Old Testament, New Testament, and still today, coverings matter. It is no small thing. Satan, he doesn't mind people with Alexander and Himenaeus, you see? Because Satan knows coverings matter. If Alexander is the covering, if Himenaeus is the covering, that's what happened. Remember the, the saints in Asia? They, were, they left Paul straight up. Okay, we're done with Paul. We like Alexander. We like Himenaeus. Satan doesn't mind Alexander and Himenaeus as coverings. Why? Wrong formula. You see? So he seduces Christians. He seduces saints. Oh, yeah, go, go, to, go to Alexander. He's a nice covering. Go to Himenaeus. He's a nice covering. He'll make you feel real good. Those guys, they're going to make you feel real good. You can continue with your sin, with your sex and your alcohol. You can do your Ouija boards. You can do the things of the occult. Alexander and Jimenez, they're going to love you. You're going to go to service. You're going to go and worship. And you're going to feel really good. No repentance. No repentance. Coverings matter, you see. It is no small thing. And we know. We know that nothing is impossible for God. Well, we, we know he can't lie, as the Bible says. And here in verse 5, Jesus, Jesus, who calmed the storm, who made the girl assumed to be dead, live. Remember our study from last week? He healed the paralytic. And in Nazareth, he could do no mighty work. You see? Does this mean that Jesus has no power? Does this mean that Jesus is incapable? Not at all. Not at all. Remember, the Lord is reactionary. 
the Lord is reactionary and the Lord is responding to the blindness of the intellectuals. You know, he's just a carpenter, remember? We're in synagogue. Did he go to school with you? Did he go to training? You know, when you when when you when you were 10 years old, did you see him as a young boy there? When he was a teenager, did you see him there? Did he go to higher academia? You see? And you have the priests puffing their collars, pop popping the collars. The arrogance. He's just a carpenter. He's just blue collar. He's just a laborer. He didn't go to formal school. You see? And the Lord is responding to their blindness. And when the blindness of the intellectuals is a covering on Nazareth, a covering on the people, there's no mighty work in Nazareth. You see? Coverings matter. Even the tabernacle testifies. Even the tabernacle that we see in Numbers. Even the tabernacle itself testifies. You see? The covering for both holy place and holy of holies. Remember? The formula must be right. Even the showbread is covered. And when the formula isn't right, in the case of Nazareth, hey, I'm sorry, Nazareth. No mighty works. You see, they made their choice and the Lord responds. No mighty works in, in Nazareth. He, in verse 5, he could do no mighty works there. You see? Now, let me say something really quick to my Calvinist and Reformed theology friends. And I love you. But I want to say something. Really, if you're Calvinist and you're Reformed, your pastors, your pastors, your teachers are blind intellectuals. Your teachers, they're the blind intellectuals. And if you submit yourself to the Calvinist and the Reformed pastor, you, like Nazareth, will have no mighty works. You see? Now, if you're Calvinist and Reformed, like, how dare you say that? How dare you say that? But you know what's happening today? And it's been happening for a while. But what happens, you know, you go to a Calvinist pastor, you go to a Reformed pastor, Reformed teacher, and you ask, you know, hey, pastor, hey, teacher, why don't we see the moving of the Holy Spirit today like we read about in the book of Acts? Why don't we see that today? And it's the blind shepherd, the blind teacher. Oh, this is what they'll say. Oh, that was for another dispensation. That was reserved for the book of Acts. It's not for today. And it's not for today because we don't see it among us in our fellowship. We don't see it in Christianity today. We don't see it among the faithful today. So therefore, we conclude that it was for the dispensation of the era of Acts and the early church. You see, they're stupid. They're fools. They deceive themselves. They're blind guides. They're blind shepherds. And you must not follow them. When we see in Nazareth how there's no mighty works in Nazareth, there's a reason why. There's a specific reason why we don't see the moving of the Spirit with them. It's because the formula is wrong. Men who have no business at the pulpit. And what they do is they appeal to the intellect. They appeal to logic. 
and you listen to their sermons and it's more like a college discourse. It's more like a college class. And they use these big words that no one understands. You see, what they do is they appeal to intellect. No life, no power. And what it is, it's the blind leading the blind. And what's happening now in these last days is that these wicked men, they tell Christians that it's perfectly okay to take the mark of the beast. Perfectly okay. Go ahead and take the mark of the beast. The Bible says there's a penalty, but hey, let's disregard the Bible. And I tell you, there is no penalty. That's what these wicked men are saying. Now, if you're like kind of in shock, you know, sometimes I have these long conversations with the Calvinists and they're like shocked, like what? And it's like, yeah, go and listen. And if you're a Calvinist reformed and you're shocked, like what is this guy talking about? He says the Calvinist pastors say to go ahead and take the mark of the beast. Go to thewayunderground.com and go to the reformed area. And you can hear it for yourself. Studies there for you to understand what the Bible teaches. Pastors in these last days saying, go ahead and take the mark of the beast. It has no bearing on your salvation. Blatant disregard to biblical warning. But what do you expect from the blind? What do you expect from the blind? You see, they make their choice, and if that's how they want to conduct themselves, that's on them. But for you, you also have a choice to make. You see? And if you have them as covering, it's just like the residents of Nazareth. Just like the residents of Nazareth. No mighty works. No book of Acts. No power. And if there's no power, there's no oil. And if there's no oil, there's no light. And if there's, if there's no light... You know what that does? It reveals the foolish virgin. And with the foolish virgin, hello like a fire. You see? And my words today unto you, if you're Calvinist or Reformed, whom I love, come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. For my Calvinist and Reformed friends, I love you. But go and listen to our studies, thewayunderground.com, and then go to the Reformed area. Because, you know, I have these conversations with, you know, the, the people who sit in the pews of Calvinist churches, Reformed churches. And, you know, sometimes they're milk drinkers and they simply don't know. They simply don't understand. They just figure, well, you know, I'm going to go to this church. And it's like, well, wait a second. Why is it that your pastor says that the book of Acts, that that was for that dispensation? Well, you know, the pastor says we don't see it today. We don't see it today because that was for, you know, that was for the book of Acts area. Okay, but why does he say that? Well, he just says, you know, the reason why is because we don't, we don't see that in, in church today. So they conclude that it was for the book of Acts. Okay, so, since the pastor says that, where in the Bible does it say there's an expiration date on the moving and the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Like we see in the book of Acts. Knowing that the Lord never changes. Knowing that Elohim, the triune nature of God, got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Knowing that He never changes. Why is it that the pastor says that the Holy Spirit and the moving and the power and the gifts is only for the book of Acts when the Lord never changes. You see? And sometimes the Calvinist is like, you know what? I get it now. 
I get it now. You see? It's very important because, you know, sometimes when I have these conversations with the Calvinists and Reformed, they're like, well, you know, you were always picking on the Calvinists and Reformed. Listen, it's not picking on the Calvinists and Reformed. You and me, we have to align ourselves to the Word of God. We have to align ourselves with the Word of God. But in these last days, what's happening, a lot of Christians, they recognize and see that churches are going crazy, straight up crazy. They're turning liberal. Their theology is turning liberal. And so what they do is they figure, well, I need a place where I can worship and there's more church government because I don't want crazy town. Listen, and I'm not saying, hey, let's go and embrace crazy town. No. But what I am saying is don't flee the lion only to run to the bear. You see? Don't flee the lion only to run to the bear. Very important to understand. And so a lot of Christians are being, you know, this church that I made, they're turning crazy. They're embracing this liberalism and, you know, they're, they're going woke. You know, they're saying, oh, they're going woke. They're going woke. So I'm going to go to this other church where there's heavy church government and that's going to prevent this from happening. But what happens is that Christians, they flee the line and they run into the bear. You see? And when you look at the doctrine of whatever denomination, it has to align with the Word of God. And where it doesn't align with the Word of God, you cannot submit to the pastor. You cannot attend that church. You see? Take heed to what you hear. As our Lord says, take heed to what you hear. Very important. Take heed to what you hear. Take heed to what you hear. It must align to the word of God because these pastors, they stand in the pulpit and they speak, they appeal to intellect and they straight up, they just go ahead and take the mark of the beast. You'll still be saved. That's condemnation. That's satanic. That's of their father, the devil. And they seduce Christians appealing to intellect. And Christians figure out, oh, you know, there's, we don't see healing. We don't see, you know, power. We don't see miracles like we see in the book of Acts because it was only for that dispensation. But you will not find an expiration date on the power and the moving and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You will not find it in the Bible. You see, you will find a, a quenching of the Spirit, an extinguishing of the Spirit, something the Bible says don't do. It's very important to understand doctrine, but also formula, which includes doctrine. And so sometimes when I have these conversations with the Calvinists, and it's usually the younger Calvinists, not younger like kids, but I mean like younger, like, you know, in, 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 in their brand of faith. And it's like, wow, you know, you're always picking on the Calvinists. It's not picking on the Calvinists, but it's to say, hey, look, this is what the Bible says. And whatever brand of faith that, that, that anybody has, it has to align with the Word of God. It must align with the Bible. And in Nazareth here in Mark chapter 6, there's no mighty works in Nazareth. But there's a reason why that happens. You see, it's because of the covering. The covering the man who appealed to the intellect and the logic. And so we see that there's no mighty works in Nazareth, what we see in verse 5, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, this is one of my 
favorite, favorite things about false doctrine, false teachers, and false prophets and defunct leaders. Now, don't get me wrong. Those things are bad, terribly bad, very bad. But it's one of my favorite things about them, even though it's bad, even though it's bad. And let me explain. Sometimes Christians are like, what? Is he saying that this is good? Is he saying that, you know, there's false theology and false doctrine and false teachers and false prophets and defunct leaders? Is he saying that these guys are good? No, no. But one of my favorite things about what we see is because there is no exposure to truth, no exposure to truth because the doctrines are false. The false teachers, the false uh, prophets, the uh, uh, defunct leaders, because there's no exposure to truth and no exposure to the right formula because of that. What it does is it excludes the punishment that we see in Hebrews chapter 6, where it becomes impossible to restore a person who meets certain conditions of apostasy. And what that does is it leaves the door open for hope. Now, don't get me wrong. It's kind of like a fine line because it's not that it's a, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a very, very fine line because with no love of the truth, the result of that is strong delusion. As the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the result of no love of truth is strong delusion. And that's straight up judgment. That's from the Lord. But sometimes what happens is baby Christians, they become Christians. They, they believe. And then they figure, well, you know what? I'm going to go to the Lutheran church. I'm going to go to the Episcopals. I'm going to go to the Calvinists. I'm going to go to the Catholics. And they just don't understand. But and what's so beautiful about that particular soul even though it's bad that they're in that they're it's that they're in that that they're in that environment even though that's a bad thing i'm not trying to say that that's a good thing but it leaves the door open for hope because they're in there for you know a couple months maybe even a couple years but because there's no exposure to truth it leaves the door open for hope because it excludes the punishment where they can't be restored. What we see in Hebrews 6, where it is impossible to restore a person. But even that has a certain time frame because when there's no love of truth, what happens is judgment. Strong delusion sets in. You see? Very important to understand what the scripture says. When I say that, I don't want to present it as like, you know, it's a good thing that, that the false teachings, it's a very bad thing, but there's also hope. It's like, you know, a parent, a parent who has a 20 year old son and the son becomes addicted to, to, to meth and starts living on the street. Well, it's one thing if the child is, you know, 10 years, you know, to 30 years old and straight up, you know, not just on meth, but now, you know, doing all kinds of different drugs. Well, in that span of time, you're kind of like, you're losing your son. You know, your parents, they, they, they're losing their son. But if they're like their first week into trying meth, 
man, there's like a greater hope. Not saying that drug use is a good thing, but if they're like their first week of trying meth, it it leaves the door open. Like, wow, you know, I, I can get him. You know, I can rescue him. I can save him. But if you're 10 years deep, 20 years deep, 30 years deep into heavy, 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 heavy drug use that's getting worse and worse and worse, well, the door starts to close where it's like, whoa, you know what? We've lost him. We've lost him. And in a similar sense, that's what it is with like false, false teachings. Yes, those are bad things. And 10 years in, 20 years in, 30 years in, it's like, whoa, that because there's no love of the truth, what happens is the strong delusion and that's judgment. But, you know, the first week, the, the first maybe even year, it leaves that door open for hope where the, the Hebrews 6 scenario doesn't apply. You see, and that's where Brother Jude, when he exhorts us, you know, to go and rescue a person and save them as through fire, making the distinction, making the distinction. Remember our study in the book of Jude? Very important. And so say, for example, you know, you take the coverings of Joel Osteen. You take the covering of Joyce Meyer and MacArthur and Benny, good old Benny, Pastor Hinn. Very bad coverings, disqualified coverings, no mighty works. Now, you might be listening. And you're like, wait a second. There's there's works with Benny. No, 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 no. That's an abomination. You see, that's a mockery of the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, you see a guy take off his coat and, you know, wave his coat and the first 10 rows fall down. No, that's an abomination. That's a mockery. These things are not good, but, you know, if a person goes to a church and for like, you know, the, uh, the first week or the first month, we're not in the Hebrews 6 punishment because what happens, the veil, which is a barrier, a very thin barrier, just like we said, a very fine line, but a barrier nonetheless. And what happens is it leaves the door open for hope and even for works, but not the biggies, no mighty work, but the door is still open. And just like here in verse 5, we see healing on a few. And it translates in the Greek as puny in number. Puny. That's how it translates in the Greek, that there is healing on puny. Now, you say, wait a minute. If you're listening, you're like, wait a minute. If Calvinism is bad, do you want me to join the Charismatics? Listen, not at all. Not at all. Because Benny's brand is an abomination. You see, it's you and me. We have to align ourselves to the Bible. We have to align ourselves to the Bible. And if you're charismatic, you know, you, you hear us talk about the Reformed and the Calvinists, you know, you know, go to our website and listen to the, go, go to the Reformed area and come out of her, my people. But if you're charismatic, you also go to our website and go to the charismatic area and come out of her, my people. You see, the tabernacle testifies the very tabernacle testifies that even the showbread had coverings. Even the showbread had coverings. You say, wait a second, it's one covering. Don't forget the, don't forget the, the layers. Don't forget the layers. Very important. The tabernacle itself testifies. And so in Nazareth, there's no mighty works. But we understand that there's no mighty works for a reason. But then we see something else that there was healing among a small number of people, and what the Bible calls a puny number of people. And it happens because what the covering was, it was the intellectuals, you see. 
Very important to understand. And these are things, when you understand formula, that holy, holy recipe that you and me apply in our lives as we move on to perfection and as we grow and mature in Christ and become deadly in Christ, the good deadly, not the bad deadly, the good deadly. All of a sudden what starts to happen is like, whoa, you know what? I get it. I understand. I get it. When I understand rules of engagement, wow, I get the Old Testament. I get the New Testament. I get it. Now I understand. I understand the prophecies. Everything aligns. Everything aligns. What Paul writes about, it aligns with what Jeremiah writes about. What Isaiah writes about, it aligns with what Peter writes about. You see? Why? Same Holy Spirit. Same Holy Spirit. And what happens is, you know, a lot of times, and we mentioned this in our study in the book of Jude, where a lot of times people say, well, you know, Jude looked at, you know, uh, 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 the book of Enoch. Ju- uh, Jude studied the book of Enoch. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He references Enoch. Why? Because the Holy Spirit told him, hey, Jude, write this down. You see? Jude wasn't there to experience Enoch. In the Old Testament. And what happens, you have these mockers and these non-believers in these last days. They say, oh, let's study the book of Enoch. Let's study the book of Enoch. And then they start to you know, go into other areas of doctrine and theology. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And that's how people fall away. The seduction. Coverings matter. Coverings matter. Satan, you want to have Alexander as, as pastor? Okay, go for it. No big deal. You got to say bye-bye to Paul. And the saints in Asia, they left. They left Paul. See you later, Paul. We're out of here. You see? You want to have him and as, as covering? Oh, go for it. Look, he's a really nice guy. You can do your sin. You can do your sex and your Ouija boards and your alcohol and your whiskey and, you know, your, your casinos. You can do all this stuff. And you want to have him and as covering? Go for it. He'll make you feel real good. But you got to leave Paul. You see? And the saints in Asia, they all left Paul. Very interesting to see the seduction. Satan knows all about coverings. All about coverings. And we see Jesus here where in Nazareth there's no mighty works. But we see works, not the mighty works. We see little works among a puny number of people. And in verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. In the Bible, you're not going to read about Jesus marveling too much. But when he does, it's at both faith and unbelief. Very interesting, the things that make him marvel. Now, let me ask you a question. No, no, if you're listening and you're Calvinist or Reformed, let me ask you a question. I love you. I love you. You're probably already incensed by the words that have been said already. But let me ask just another question. If you're Calvinist, if you're Reformed, and I love you. Why would Jesus marvel? We see here in verse 6 that he marveled because of their unbelief. But if Calvinism were true, if Reformed theology were true, why would Jesus marvel at a people that he predestines to hell. Why? Why would he even marvel? 
Why would he be blown away? Why would he be shocked? Why would he be surprised at a people that he predestines to hell? Predestined, predetermined to hell. Why? It doesn't align with scripture. Calvinism, Reformed theology. The brand of theology has been placed in the balance of scripture and found wanting. And it's Calvinism, Reformed theology, it's growing. In these last days, it's growing. And the reason why is because people see the craziness in our communities, depending on where you live. You know, I presently teach from America and it's crazy town. Everywhere you look, it's crazy town. And people in church, Christians, they're like, you know what? My church is going woke. You know, the pastor's introducing this. The pastor's introducing this. And, oh, I'm going to go to this church over here. The pastor, they're very strong in church government, church government, church government. But when you understand formula, all of a sudden it's like, whoa. The theology must match the Bible. And that's why we pose this question. If Calvinism were true, if Reformed theology were true, why would Jesus be shocked and blown away? And why would he marvel at a people that he predestines to hell if Calvinism were true? You see? And again, I say to the Calvinist, to the Reformed, and I love you, but I say this. Come out of her, my people. And so we see here in verse 6 that, yes, Jesus marveled, but because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Kind of reminds me of the circuit of Samuel. Remember our study not too long ago? The circuit of covering. Very important to understand formula. And in verse 7, and he called the 12 to himself. Now, when Jesus would speak, when Jesus would speak, just like we mentioned earlier, some would reject him. And some would follow him. And then some would follow, but then we see a more intimate bubble with a certain 12 here. And so what happens is our Lord takes his 12 and there's a call to action. Where in verse 7, he called the 12 to himself and began to send them out. Two by two. And gave them power over unclean spirits. 12 disciples, two by two. So six groups of two. Vessel one, vessel two together. Two by two. And he gives them power over unclean spirits. Now, the power and gifting of the Holy Spirit, that comes later. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, that comes later. You see, with the exclusion of Judas Iscariot. Here, there is power given, but it's over unclean spirits. Very important to make this distinction. You see, because the mockers, you know, in these last days, and it's been going on for decades and centuries and probably even longer. But the mockers, they say, you know, why is Jesus giving the Holy Spirit when he says that that comes later? Now, when I say mockers, usually these are people who grow up in church. They've, they've grown up in church. They've left the church and sometimes they're even Satanists. And the Satanists, sometimes when they're former Christians or they grew up in the church, sometimes they know their Bible. And in a lot of cases, sometimes they know their Bible very well, better than Christians even. But the Christian, you might say like, well, you know, that's, a, that's an indictment against Christians. No, no, no. The Christian is better off. Why? Because of the mixture of faith. Remember our study in Hebrews? Because of the mixture of faith. You see, everything aligns. Everything must align with Scripture. So here we see vessel one and vessel two, two men teams. Vessel one, vessel two together. And they're being sent out. And I love this so much. I love this so much because it speaks to us as sponges. 
sponges because for I mean, you take a sponge take a sponge you know you put it under the faucet and you know it, it soaks up water but then you turn off the water you squeeze the sponge and what happens the water pours out and it's the same with us because with you and me you know studying the bible and reading the bible what happens is, is there's a, there's a period of time where we learn and we grow and we mature but to what end to what end is it to have knowledge for the sake of knowledge not at all not at all because here what's happening the disciples they've had a period of time where they're soaking it all up they're soaking it in everything that jesus has taught him but now jesus he's sending them out you see he's sending them out and in verse 8 he commanded them to take nothing for their journey he commanded them take nothing for the journey except a staff no bag no bread no copper in the money belts but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. So back in the day, what happened is that they would layer clothing, you know, for cooler evening temperatures. You know, it gets cold at night, boom, extra tunic. And here Jesus says, don't take an extra tunic, no bag, no bread, no money. Take your sandals, your tunic, and your staff. And take the message. Take the message. The message that you have to speak. Remember, two by two. Vessel one, vessel two, going out with a very special message. A period of time where they soak it all in. But now, as sponges, now they're going to, you know, squeeze and pour out. And don't forget power over unclean spirits here in Mark 6. No, no baptism of the Holy Spirit just yet. Just yet. That comes later in the book of Acts. But here we see power over unclean spirits. And what a contrast to the modern day missionary. The modern-day missionary, you know, and it's very common. You know, I teach from America, very common in the Western world. And, you know, you get a phone call from another believer, another believer. And, you know, hey, you know, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. Or, you know, maybe they want to come busy. They want to come see you. And, you know, they start to tell you, oh, the Lord has called me to evangelize in Zimbabwe. And you think, wow, you know, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Wow, that's cool, brother. That's cool, sister. Wow, praise the Lord. And then the person starts to, you know, guilt trip you. You know, the Lord has called me to Zimbabwe, but I can't go unless I get a steady flow of $5,000 per month. I need $5,000 per month because it's going to pay for rent. It's going to pay for food. It's going to pay for my health care. It's going to pay for my car. You know, it's going to pay for, you know, my special uh, ministry retirement fund. You see? And then they give you the guilt trip. Well, you know, if you want to be a part of what God is doing, would you like to commit to pay $500 a month? $20 a month? How about $5 per month? Understand what's happening? The fools are revealing themselves to you. They're revealing themselves to you. Because in the Bible, when the Lord sends people out, they're often sent with nothing but a message and power. The provision from the Lord, that happens in real time. In real time. That's what happens in the Bible. Remember, Jesus says, hey, no double tunics, don't do that. You see? Just your sandals, you know, and staff. And that's it. Sandals, tunic, staff. And the message, don't forget, you know, that's the most important. And power over unclean spirits. That's what he tells the disciples. 
He doesn't say, you know, get your health care. He doesn't say, you know, get your, your retirement fund, you know, you know, buy a car. You know, you're going to be living in the, you know, the, the fanciest hotel in whatever town you're going to. You see. Provision from the Lord, it's in real time. And so one time, you know, a guy came like that to me before, you know, God is calling me to this part of the world. It's like, wow, praise the Lord. You know, and there was a pause. Praise the Lord. Pause. Kind of like a long, like the awkward pause. It's like, okay, uh, that's really, that's really good, brother. But why are you here? Because God is calling you and you're, 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 you're going to start in this calling in disobedience. Why are you even here? And the guy starts to tell me, well, I can't go unless I get my monthly commitment. I got to have $5,000 per month. And then comes the guilt trip. Do you want to be a, a part of God's work? Listen, that's not the Lord. That's not the Lord. You see? And then the person goes on to say, how dare you say it's not the Lord? Look, you know, look what we do. We build these homes and I'm going to be called over here to this part of the world. And we build these homes. We give the people clean water. We give the people shelter and we build schools. And I'm like, okay, cool. You know, it's, it's schools for Bible studies, like a Christian, you know, a learning center. Is it something Bible related? No, 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 no. This is schools for academics. You know, we're going to do the math and science and school classes. We can absolutely call this a humanitarian effort. We can call it Habitat for Humanity. But we cannot call that a work of God. Because a work of God never, never excludes the Word of God. A work of God never excludes the Word of God. Very important to understand. Because you have people here today, and it happens a lot in the Western world, and I presently teach from America, and it's very common here where missionaries, oh, I'm a missionary, I'm a missionary, and the Lord is sending me out, God has spoke to my heart, and he's sending me out, and I need $5,000 a month. And, you know, $5,000 a month in America, that's a lot, depending on where you live. But in, like, another part of the world, that's, like, triple, sometimes quadruple. I need $5,000 a month, you know, I need my housing, my food, I need this, I need that. And it's like, well, what is it? Tell me, what, what's this, what does this ministry entail? Well, you just, oh, we're, it's, it's, we're going we're gonna to build houses and do all these homes and, you know, and the schools and shelter and all these things. Listen, the work of the Lord never excludes the word of the Lord. Very important to understand. We have to understand formula. But the Lord called me. The Lord called me. Sorry, brother. You were tricked. Satan presents himself as an angel of light. You were tricked. And you did not discern the spirits. As the Bible says, you were tricked. I love you. but And I'm telling you this because I love you. I'm not saying this to hurt you. And the missionary gets mad. You see? And so here the Lord gives, you know, instruction to the twelve. You know, sending them out two by two. Vessel one, vessel two. Going out. And in verse 10, also he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. 
Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Whoa. That's heavy. That's heavy. That's very heavy. Now, it's very true. It's very true that Sodom and Gomorrah, it's in the history books. It's happened. But what lies ahead? What lies ahead? What lies ahead is far worse to those who reject the Lord and to those who reject his messengers. You see, Christians today, they get very, very mad at me. Don't use fear tactics to tell about Jesus. Don't scare people to heaven. Why not? Why not? I don't know about you, but hellfire, damnation, fire and brimstone. That's not scary. That's very scary. You see, and the fire and brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus says, that's more tolerable. That's more tolerable in the day of judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah is more tolerable. You see, being scared of hellfire damnation worked wonders for me. It worked wonders for me. And here we are, you and me, studying the Bible together. And in verse 12, so they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. You see, just like the sponges we mentioned earlier. Just like the sponges. All this time soaking up everything and now sent out, sent by Jesus. Now, this isn't reserved for the Mark chapter 6 era because it still happens today. Turn really quick to Ephesians chapter 4. Really quick, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And so, you know, here in Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, these aren't positions like a person applying for a job where a guy's, you know, they just, you know, hey, I think I, I think I want to be a pastor. So I'm going to submit my application over here. You see, these are things that are happening today where wicked men, they negotiate salary for pastor, you know, for a pastor position or a church, you know, that the church board, they have a pastor position. And, you know, let's say in this particular example, the, the, the board, they say, oh, you know, we, we need a new pastor. And let's say the position pays $150,000 per year. They want the rock star type, you know, the mega church. And so they're going to pay the pastor, the head pastor. We got a head pastor position. And the board says, okay, we're going to pay the guy $150,000 per year. We want the rock star. You know, we're going to be on TBN, Tricking Believers Nightly, and we're going to pay him $150,000 a year. And they get hundreds of applications. And all these applications, they, the, the, all the notoriety, they have all their certificates, their degrees, their education, their academia. They have all these degrees and master's degrees and doctorates in theology. And they want the rock star type. And they got all their applications. All have gone to seminary, Bible college, divinity school. But then the board, what they do is they start to weed out the nerdy ones. 
They weed out the nerdy ones because they're looking for the rock star. They want the rock star personality. And so they have five that have made the cut. And so they interview and they found the one. They found the one. And they make the offer and the rock star, so, you know, the rock star negotiates. Hey, you know, if you offer 150, make it 200 and we have a deal. Make it two, instead of $150,000 a year, make it $200,000 a year. And you know what? We got a deal. And then the church board concedes. And they got their rock star pastor that's going to take their church to the next level. In their eyes. This is the inner working of most churches. Most churches with boards and ministry leaders. And the salaries range, of course. But this is the model that's followed by a lot of churches. Most churches. I don't want to say all churches, but a whole lot of churches follow this model with the church board and the ministry leaders. And, oh, we got a we got a pastor position over here. And so we need to fill it. And they put their put their, you know, their their, uh, uh, the, you know, send us your resumes. If you're a pastor, send us your resumes or if you're in divinity school, send us your resumes. And one could look at this situation and say, well, wait a second. What's the problem? What's the problem? Because Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says that, look, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, what's the big deal? This all aligns with the Bible, a person could say. But when we look at the verse, we look at Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, you know what's most important? The first four words, and he himself gave, he himself gave gave these positions they're not to be filled by man like you know the board that you know hey send us your resumes no listen these positions they're filled by god the calling of the lord you never see that in the bible you never see a church board in the bible saying hey you know what send us your resumes send us your you never see that in the bible but we see it today. You see? This is exactly what we see in the Old Testament. Where, you know, the Lord, his, the, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. He looks at Moses. That's my guy. Isaiah. That's my guy. Moses didn't submit an application. Isaiah didn't submit an application. You see? Moses didn't negotiate wages. You see? The eyes of the Lord sees Moses, says, you know what? That's my guy. The eyes of the Lord sees Isaac. Amos, you know, Amos himself says, I'm no prophet nor the son of a prophet. What does God say? Surprise, Amos, you're my guy. Also with Hannah. That's my gal. Also with Ruth. That's my gal. Deborah. That's my gal. Yael. That's my gal. Remember Yael? Remember Yael? Her husband made a choice to be against God. Her husband made the cognizant choice to be against the Lord. And Yael, she made the better choice. Okay, husband, you want to be dumb? Okay, not me. Have a nice day. And she took her tent peg. Remember the tent peg? Now, for my sisters in Christ, you know, very important to remember that Old Testament, you know, Old Testament rules of engagement. So, you know, no tent pegs, no tent pegs. You know, we fight. We don't fight under the old covenant rules of engagement. We fight as new covenant believers. New covenant rules of engagement. Very important to understand. So no more tent pegs. That's old school. That's Old Testament. Old covenant. 
You see, the Lord, the Lord, He never changes. And His eyes are everywhere. The Lord, His eyes are everywhere. He look, You know, the Old Testament, just like our study in the book of Judges, in the era of Judges, when everybody was doing what is right in their own eyes, what they deemed to be right in their own eyes. And what happens is generation after generation after generation, what happens is the Lord became forgotten. And we see how idolatry comes in. And as a result of idolatry, we see more wickedness come in. You see, it's that downward slope. It's decay. And the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. As in the Old Testament, as in the New Testament, still today, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. And most Christians see that as scary. Most believers see that as a scary thing. You know, God's eyes are everywhere, so I can't sin. I can't do the strip clubs. I can't do the crack. I can't do the vodka. I can't do the Ouija boards because God's eyes are everywhere. And, you know, listen, that's a true observation. But it's also extreme babiness. Very extreme babiness. What about when a believer starts in fear? And don't forget, it is written. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so what about when a believer begins with fear? You know, I can't do the crack. I can't do the meth because God's eyes are everywhere. And, you know, there's that scary aspect of, you know, God's eyes are everywhere. So, you know, no crack, you know, no, 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 no meth, no vodka, no strip clubs, no Ouija boards. There's that scary aspect. And then time passes. And then like straight up, whoa. It's not just sort of like, you know, I can't do the crack. Now it's, I don't even want the crack. I don't even want the meth. I don't even want the strippers. I don't even want the vodka. I don't even want the Ouija board. I don't even want the casinos. You see? And then more time passes. Whoa, it's like all these things. I don't even want, you know, I, 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 don't, I, I can't watch these shows anymore. I can't watch these movies anymore. It's like, it's not like I can't. It's like, I don't, I don't even want to. And the whole time, you know, I still fear the Lord, but it's different. A person can say, I still fear the Lord and it's different. Now, I trust him. I trust him because what's happening, he's cleaning up my life. You see? You open up the pantry, there used to be all these bottles. Now you open up the pantry and there's like soup, you know, pancake mix syrup you don't put up the pantry it's like no, no no more vodka no more gin no more you know tonic it's like well there's some syrup over here just open up the pantry and there's some cheerios cereal boxes no more bottles those are gone and it's, it's like oh i missed the vodka i missed the vodka no it's gone the lord is cleaning up lives and so it begins in the fear of the Lord. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, you know what? I still fear him, but now I trust him. More time passes. And it's like, well, you know what? I, I thought I loved the Lord from, you know, from the get, you know, from the very start, start. I thought I loved the Lord. But wow, I'm falling in love with him more and more. And my love for him is getting deeper and deeper. And the whole time, my life, it's getting cleaner and cleaner. It's getting more pure. 
every aspect of my life. A person can say every aspect of my life. It's turning holy. It's becoming holy. It started off, I was a method, I was on crack, I was on the strippers and the Ouija boards and all kinds of different things. But now, whoa, night and day, now it's holy. And it's not just holy. Now, I'm so madly, insanely in love with my king. I love Jesus. You see? It's very true that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. It's very true. And most Christians see the scary side of that, which is very immature. It's true, but it's still very immature because a person thinks, well, you know, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. So I can't do the sex, the drugs, the gin, the Ouija boards. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's extreme babiness, but it's also extremely sad. Because what happens is many believers, they don't want to grow up. They don't want to mature. They don't want to move on to perfection. You see? And then they have accommodating pastors who twist the scriptures to accommodate the flesh. Where these pastors feed them milk and milk only. You see? Because the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. But when a person's life begins to change and become holy, all of a sudden, just like with Amos, just like with Deborah, just like Ruth, just like Isaiah, the Lord who never changes could look at the landscape. And say, just like in the book of Judges, in the Judges era, when the Lord became forgotten, generation after generation, the Lord becomes forgotten. And wow, Deborah, that's my gal. And what about if the Lord, when our lives, remember the challenge that we posed in our study in the book of Leviticus, to think of our lives as a sweet aroma unto the Lord. And what about the Lord right here, right now, looking at you? Yes, this world is crazy. Yes, the church is crazy. Yes, the landscape of mankind. The Lord has become forgotten. You know, if non-believer, the Lord is forgotten, mocked. Believer, the Lord is forgotten and mocked by behaviors. And the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. And what if his eyes are on you? And for such a time as this, that's my guy. That's my gal. You see? Just like Deborah. Very beautiful. Just like Jephthah. Remember, the Lord never changes. And so many times people say, oh, you know, the eyes of the Lord, they're everywhere. And they see it as scary. The eyes of the Lord, they're everywhere. I can't do the sex. I can't do the Ouija boards. I can't do the, I can't do this. I can't do that. And that's true. There is that, you know, that's for babies. I mean, look at parents with their children, you know, hey, you know, don't put your finger in the socket. Don't put your finger in the socket. But the child grows up and the child is like, man, you know, I'm mad at my mom. I'm mad at my dad because he won't let me put my feet in my, 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 my finger in the socket. No, the child doesn't even want to put the, the finger in the socket. But when the child is like one or crawling on the ground, the child wants to put the finger in the socket. 
But the same thing happens in the faith. Christians, like babies, they like the milk. They love the milk. They want to stay on the milk. It's like, wow, I can't put my, I I can't put my finger in the socket. It's like, wow, I can't do the vodka. I can't do the Ouija boards. I can't do the sex. I can't do the meth. That's what happens when it's a steady diet of milk. There's no maturity. And just like the child who's 10 years old, still a child, but not even thinking about putting the finger in the, in the socket. You see? But what about us in the faith? We grow, we mature, we become holy. In the eyes of the Lord looking upon you. And that's my guy, that's my gal. I'm going to use him. I'm going to use her. You see? Nothing new under the sun. You see, a person could say, well, you know, we have fulfillment of Ephesians 4 because we have a pastor. We have a pastor, so Ephesians 4. We have fulfillment. But this is where distinction must be made. Because is the position filled by man? Or is the position filled by God? You see? Is it a guy who says, you know, I'm going to teach the Bible. Or is it the guy who's told by God, teach my word. Teach my word. The distinction must be made. And the Lord tells us what to look for. You see? The Lord tells us what to look for. And that's why we stress heavily formula. Formula, 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 formula. In you, in me, in us. It's got to be right. Now, I want to say something to my sisters in Christ, whom I love deeply, my sisters in Christ. Now, sometimes I wish, I wish, 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 wish I could take all the women in the faith, all the females in the faith, but specifically in this particular case, all the women in the faith. I wish I could take every single woman in the faith, put them in a warehouse, come in and just teach Just teach all the women in the faith. Sometimes I wish. A lot of times I wish. And I don't want to say that I'm completely done with the men. I don't want to say that. That I'm completely done with them, the men. But when I look at the state of the church today, don't forget, it's it's been under the leadership of the men. You see? And, you know, sometimes, you know, just I just wish, you know, to just teach women and women only and it happens all around sometimes i want to teach the men and the men only sometimes i want to teach kids and you know toddlers and toddlers only sometimes teenagers and teenagers or sometimes teenage boys and teenage boys only sometimes teenage girls and teen- sometimes old people old women i want old women only you know old men only sometimes it, it and sometimes pastors only and elders only and worship leaders only sometimes it's just i i wish 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 But in this particular case, the women. And for my beautiful sisters in Christ. Listen, coverings of the overseer, coverings of the overseer, it's always, always male. Always, always male. Old Testament, New Testament, and still today, always male. And those are coverings that are in the form of pastor and elder. Always male. And we see churches today with female pastors and female elders. You cannot submit yourself to them. Why? Because it's the wrong formula. It's not what the Bible says. It's the wrong formula. 
But this is where a lot of ministries error. Because what they do is they overemphasize the male role to the exclusion of women. And that cannot be done. You see, under the new covenant, as new covenant believers, the Bible shows us women, deacons, teachers, prophetesses, and evangelists which are also given by the Lord for the equipping and edifying. Never without male covering, though. Very important to understand. It's never without male covering, you see? And it's important to understand because, you know, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, as we said earlier. And then you hear us say, you know, what if the Lord is looking at you, brother, looking at you, sister, and then you think like, well, does it, is he saying that women can be pastors? No, 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 no. Pastors, elders, those coverings, always, always, always male. But don't forget, the Bible teaches us about women, females, deacons, teachers, prophetesses, evangelists. And we don't say this, you know, to, to hurt in any way, shape, or form. We say this to sharpen you. For my beautiful sisters in Christ, we say this to sharpen you and encourage you. Because what a lot of wicked men are doing today in these last days, they attempt to nullify a mighty work, a mighty, mighty work, simply on the grounds of your gender, because you are a female. You see? And that's wrong. These wicked men, that's what they, you know, I don't want to say I'm done with men, but a lot of mess has happened under their leadership. A whole lot of mess. I mean, when you read the Bible and you look at like apostasy, which is not a good thing, a, a, a prophesied event falling away, it's under the leadership of men. You see? Not good. Not good. And so I don't want to say I'm done with men, but, you know, I see the highest concentration of straight-up warriors with the females. And so something else we have to say too, and we have to warn, it's about the foolish women. And the foolish women, they present themselves as teachers and ministry leaders, but they're fools. And, you know, and it's commonly found in certain sects of what we refer to as a false doctrine. And what happens is these foolish women, and often they're younger women, and what they do is they teach an unbiblical interpretation of being homemaker and being, you know, spousal submission, you know, like, you know, it's usually with the young women age 20 to 35, you know, married for less than 10 years. And they say, stay home, stay home, submit to your husband, clean the house, make the meals, stay home, be a good homemaker, stay home. You never see the old ladies in these so-called ministries. It's always with the young, immature ones. And, you know, they say, you know, stay home. They got their social media, you know, stay home, submit to your husband, stay home, clean the house, stay home, scrub the toilets, stay home, submit the husband with the sex on demand, you know, stay home, cook the meals, stay home and be a homemaker, like and subscribe, like and subscribe. Now, understand, very important to understand for my sisters in Christ. Submission to husband is very biblical, very, very biblical, but it's also very dangerous because the formula in husband, it has to be right. It must be right. Go and listen to our studies on marriage at the home. 
you know, marriage and what the home looks like, thewayunderground.com, go to those studies. Learn what the Bible says about being a homemaker, a homemaker. And what the Bible says about being a homemaker, it's not what is widely taught by carnal men. You see? So the Bible says, understand, the Bible says the harvest is plentiful. The Bible says, go and make disciples. The Bible says, let the married be as though unmarried so that we can serve the Lord. That's what the Bible says. Now, knowing this and knowing these objectives and looking at the sides of God and Satan in these last days, which side do you think would urge you to stay home and clean toilets? Remember, in Christ, there is no male and female. See? It's straight up warfare. It's straight up warfare. I know women who could doctrinally, doctrinally mop the floor with pastors. You see? But our submission is always to the head pastor, which is Jesus, son of the most high God. I mean, look at Chloe. Look at Chloe. Beautiful, beautiful Chloe. She could mop the floor with the Corinthian pastors, but she didn't. She goes to the male covering. She and those in her home. And that male covering has a head covering. You see? The tabernacle in the wilderness testifies. You see? So you might wonder, you might be listening like, what in the world is this guy talking about? Are we going to be in Mark chapter 6? Now, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus, he sends out his disciples. He sends out his disciples. And we mention these, it is also written to encourage and sharpen my sisters in the faith, straight up warriors in the faith. Very important to understand. The harvest is plentiful, what the Bible says, but the workers are few. That's what the Bible tells us, you see? And so let's go back to, to, to Mark chapter 6. And so here in Mark chapter 6, Jesus, you know, he sends out the disciples. Very specific formula that he gives them. You know, he doesn't say, you know, hey, you know, go out into these towns. But before you go, make sure you collect money for retirement. You know, go out into these towns, but make sure you get, you know, your, your, your clothing allowance. Make sure you have money for rent. And the Lord specifically tells them, no money. No money because provision is in real time. That's what the Bible, you know, biblical provision, it's in real time. So here we are in Mark chapter 6, and we hit a meanwhile here. We hit a meanwhile because what Jesus does is he sends out his disciples. But meanwhile, we see something else. Remember in chapter 1, you know, Brother Mark, you know, when he wrote about John the Baptist, how he was put in prison. And here we are in, in Mark chapter 6, and here we are in verse 14. Well, we see that John is dead. He's died. And let's look at verse 14 in Mark chapter 6, verse 14. Now King Herod heard of him. So King Herod heard of Jesus. Now King Herod, he's, he's, he's king at this time. And the Herods are a family, a political dynasty. 
You know, in America, you know, I presently teach from America and in America, we have families that are dynasties, kind of like the Kennedy family. In America, we have the Kennedys. I don't know how it is in wherever are you're listening, but you might have a, a particular family that's a political dynasty. But here in America, we have the Kennedy family. We're, you know, well known. They're, they're, they're seats of political office. They've varied from, you know, different branches of government in different areas, and but it's varied over the decades. But that's what the Herods are here. It's a family dynasty of political power. And we see king mentioned here, but the higher authority, it's in in, in the realm of man, it's Caesar. In the realm of man, the higher authority is Caesar. Now, don't forget chapter three. Don't forget chapter three. Remember the religious establishment with the political establishment, the Herodians? What what they're doing is they've plotted chapter three. They're already plotting to destroy Jesus. So here we have King Herod. And he hears of Jesus. And we see in verse 14, Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. So we're like, whoa. I mean, read him. In in, in chapter 1, we see that John the Baptist was put in prison. But then now, all of a sudden, to our surprise, beautiful John the Baptist. He says, John the Baptist is risen from the dead? Hold up. What happened? What happened? Because in chapter 1, we discover John the Baptist is arrested. And then the next mention of him, he's dead. What? What happened? So King Herod hears of Jesus and he makes these conclusions. It's John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. And we see here that, and therefore, these powers are at work in him. In verse 15, others said, it's, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet or like one of the prophets. Verse 16, but when Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead, exclamation point. Now, not to get off topic, but you know what I love about this exchange of non-believers? And it's a, it's a, it's a very tough subject here because... Beautiful John the Baptist, he's been beheaded. We, 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 we come to realize that he's been beheaded here in our study in the book of Mark. Here in chapter 6, chapter 1, he's arrested. And we figure, okay, he's arrested, he's in prison. And chapter 6, he's been beheaded. But what I love so much about this exchange, and not to get off topic, but you have these non-believers who mention Jesus, John, Elijah, and the prophets, and they're attempting to identify, and I love it so much. You know why? Because the prophets and John the Baptist and Elijah, they have such holy ingredients. They have such holy ingredients and intimacy with God that when these non-believers hear of Jesus, these are the names that come to their mind. You see? Now that they do have evil intent. But it's through their association to the holy. Now, don't forget the the pneumos. Don't forget what's happening in the pneumos, the spirit realm. You see, very important to understand what's happening in the pneumos, in the spirit realm. Because these very things that we see happening in Mark 6, and not just Mark 6, but Mark 4, 5, 6. These are things that are going to happen in the last days. These are the things that are going to happen again when people and forces, they're going to come against the Christians. Why? Because of our association to Jesus. That's why. And we see it happening here. You know, oh, it's John whom I beheaded. And oh, it's Elijah. It's the prophet. 
And that's what they say when they see Jesus. And in the very sore topic here, very sad, very devastating topic here. But at the same time, it's also like, wow, that's so beautiful. That's so beautiful that they see Jesus, they hear of Jesus, and they think, wow, Elijah. And they think, oh, maybe it's one of the prophets. Oh, maybe it's John the Baptist. And I love that so much because that's how intimate they are with the Lord. Elijah, the prophets, John the Baptist. And so here we discover that John the Baptist is dead. We discover that he's been beheaded. So what happened? What happened? Brother Mark, what he does is he writes to us. And he explains to us what happened to our beautiful brother. In verse 17, we continue. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. So, very interesting what we see here. And what we see here. Herodias, female, is married to Philip. And what happens is she leaves her husband Philip and marries her husband's brother. And this is Herod Antipas. Now, already the gross factor is straight up off the charts. So, Herodias wants John the Baptist arrested. See, and husband number two, this is Herod Antipas, he complies. He complies. And remember, it, it wasn't by Herodian decree. Herod himself, we see in verse 17, Herod himself gave the order, you know, find John and arrest him. Find John the Baptist and arrest him. So we see here, Herodias, she doesn't like she doesn't like John the Baptist. She does not like him. So wait a second. What in the world did he do? What did John do? What was his crime? Why is it that Herodias doesn't like him? Why is it that Herodias wants him in jail, in prison, as we see here in verse 17, that Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her? And in verse 18, because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John the Baptist told him. John didn't hit him. He didn't punch him. He didn't kick him. What John did is he just spoke. Now, let me say something really quick to the mockers. The mockers who say that this contradicts the law, like mockers in these last days who say, the Bible says, you know, that, that it's okay to marry your brother's wife. And John says that's unlawful. So that's a contradiction. That's a contradiction. That's a contradiction. And these mockers in these last days, what they do is they cite the Old Testament and they say, oh, the law says, you know, marry your brother's wife. Now, first of all, if that's you, you're listening and you're a mocker and you still haven't committed your life to Christ, number one, Repent and commit your life to Christ. If you're one of the mockers, you say, I'm not going to do that. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. You cite the contradictions, what you assume to be contradiction. But first, what you're citing is the Old Testament law for inheritance. Second, death is required. Death is required. And what this means is that Philip, he's not dead. He's still alive. You see? 
very important to understand. So if you're one of the mockers, you're listening and you're like, well, you know what? My friend told me to listen to this or I just happened to come across this and I'm listening. And, you know, I hate the Bible. I hate Christians. The Bible's so full of contradictions. And you're like, you know, oh, yeah, this is a contradiction because, you know, it's not John the Baptist says it's not lawful to have your brother's wife. Oh, yeah, that is a contradiction because, you know, the, the Old Testament says that you are to marry your brother's wife. Listen, no death, no death. Very important to understand what the scriptures say. And so we see brother, uh, 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 the, the, the brother, uh, uh, Herod Antipas, his brother is still alive. Philip is still alive. And that's why John the Baptist says, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so if you're a mocker, you say, oh, it's a contradiction, contradiction. Listen to me. It's not a contradiction. Mock no more. And repent and come to Christ. Hit pause, listen to the message, and commit your life to Christ. How to commit your life to Christ? You listen to that message, you commit your life to Christ, and then you come back, you listen, and we continue in our journey together, you and me. You and me together on our way to paradise. And so we see something else here in this verse, in verse 18. Is Herod Jewish? I mean, straight up, why, why cite Hebrew law to Herod? Because the Herods are a Gentile family, but they practice Jewish tradition. And you know what? It's for politics. It's for politics. It's like politicians today, pandering to Christians for political power, pandering to whoever. Why? Because they want power. So John the Baptist, he doesn't punch Herod. He doesn't kick Herod. He just speaks. He speaks the truth. And it hits a nerve. It hits a nerve because truth hurts. And John's words hit a nerve, not in Herod, but in his wife, in Herodias. In verse 19, therefore, because remember, you know, John the Baptist says it's not lawful to have your brother's wife. Therefore, in verse 19, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him. You see, truth hurts. Truth hurts. And John spoke truth boldly because he's he's just calling it like he sees it. It's nothing fancy. He's just calling it like he sees it. I'm straight up. It's unlawful to do such a thing. And understand, when you speak truth, when you speak truth, do not expect to be liked. You see? John speaks truth. And with Herod, his words don't have the same impact as they do with Herodias. Herodias straight up wants John dead. He, you know, he, he wants him dead. You see, John spoke to Herod. John spoke to Herod. It was Herodias who heard about it. And was she there? I don't know. But she did find, you know, did, did she found out, you know, she, she might have been there. She might have not been there. I don't know. But she was straight up mad. She didn't like it because truth always hurts. Truth always hurts the flesh. You see, truth always hurts hurts the flesh always and i tell you from experience i mean when i was a non-believer and i opened up the bible and i started to realize whoa what in the world is this and i was you know raised catholic and i'm raised catholic and i'm starting reading the bible it's like what in the world the priest never told me this he never told me this it's like all this stuff about catholicism like what like that's not what the bible teaches and truth always hurts the only time truth does not hurt, the only time is when a person is abiding 
in Christ. That's the only time truth doesn't hurt. That's the only time. Very important to understand. I remember sitting in church as a brand new believer, sitting in church, and I felt like somebody lit a fire under my seat. I felt like I was burning because everything that the pastor was saying, going through the Bible verse by verse, everything that the Bible was saying was like murder. I was like, what in the world? I was mad. Who does this guy think he is? And then all of a sudden I read the Bible, I look at the Bible. He said, you know, turn the Bible, turn over here and read this. And I had my finger on it and I was just following along and he's just reading what the Bible says. And then I started to realize my problem isn't with the guy. My problem is with the Bible. And it's like, whoa. And then I started to realize, oh my goodness, my problem is with the Lord. My problem is with God. And I was terrified. And praise be to the Lord, you know, I repented. And I came to the Lord. And that's what truth does. Truth always hurts because truth confronts the natural man. Truth confronts the natural woman. And truth confronts the flesh and the carnal nature. And you and me, we have a choice to make. Are we going to yield to the word or not? You and me, we make a choice. Yes, we're going to yield to the word. And don't forget, we have the paracletus, the helper, who helps us. And at the same time, to understand that truth can hurt, but in the course of time, as a person grows and matures, and just like the the big campus that we mentioned earlier, you and me were in preschool and we matriculate. Preschool, all of a sudden we're in kindergarten and then we matriculate. We're in elementary, first grade, second grade, third grade, and all of a sudden, middle school, we matriculate. And then all of a sudden we're in high school, And what happens as we grow, as we mature, what happens is like, whoa, you know what? The word of God, it's less offensive. It hurts less. You know why? Because the Lord is purifying us. The Lord is cleaning us. The Lord is making us holy by his spirit and through his word. That's what's happening. And praise be to the Lord, because you can read the Bible and it's like, whoa, this is like a knife in my heart. And then like a month later, you repent, you come, you, you know, you come to Christ. And if you're not a believer, but you know, even as a believer, it's like, whoa, you know what? You know, I have all these preconceived notions about sex and drugs and alcohol and abortion and all kinds of different things. But you believe in Jesus. And then all of a sudden you start to read the Bible. And you start to, you know, grow and mature. And it's like, whoa, you know what? The Lord doesn't like my alcohol. Oh, you know what? The Lord doesn't like my Ouija boards. Oh, you know what? The Lord, he doesn't like the sex, you know? I mean, within marriage is good. But, you know, the Lord doesn't like the, the, the strippers and the prostitutes, you know? And he doesn't like the pornography. And then all of a sudden you continue reading. Wow, the Lord doesn't like, you know, the meth. The Lord doesn't like the Ouija board. The Lord doesn't like, you know, the gambling. All these things. And then you look at conduct. Like, wow, the Lord doesn't like it when I have these dirty thoughts. Oh, the Lord doesn't like it when I have road rage. Oh, the Lord doesn't like it when I curse and I say these swear words. Oh, the Lord doesn't like it. And you know what happens? Because you and me, we yield to the word of God. And the paracletus, the Holy Spirit helps us. We become holy. 
And in the course of time, you could read those same words which hurt you. And then all of a sudden you read it and it's like beautiful. You're like, whoa, this is so, this is gorgeous. This word that we have, Genesis to Revelation, this is gorgeous. This is so beautiful. And what's happened is the Lord has made you holy and is continuing to make you holy and purifying you. As you and me, we make these cognizant choices to, yes, I'm going to align myself with the word of God. That's what's happening. But when a person doesn't do that, the truth is always going to hurt. And that's a major problem with the milk drinkers. Because when you have the milk drinkers, you know, babies in the faith and babies are beautiful and milk is beautiful, but milk is for babies. But then all of a sudden you have babies, you know, there's, you know, I don't know if you're familiar, you know, I, I teach from America, but I don't know if you're familiar with, you know, the Toys R Us store. They've closed. I don't know if they're around anymore, if they're online or whatever, but Toys R Us. And when I was a kid, they always used to have the song, you know, at Christmas time, they would always air the commercials, you know, and one of the, the, the verses in the song, the words of the song, you know, I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. You know, and you know, all, all the kids, you know, we were all, you know, I don't want you to Toys R Us, you know, it's like, oh, go to Toys R Us, you get all the toys. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. But it happens in the faith too. It happens in the faith. I don't want to grow up. I don't want to mature. I don't want to grow. And the Bible says, don't forget our study in Hebrews 5 and 6. The Bible says that we put aside the things that are elementary in the faith. But it's if the Lord permits. Remember? If the Lord permits. And the Word of God gives us very specific parameters on how we matriculate from preschool to kindergarten to first grade second third and move on to perfection very specific blueprints and at the same time with this understanding that's how we have these deeper understandings where you know in one time one, one passage truth is going to hurt and then all of a sudden, when truth confronts the flesh, it's like, wow, it hurts. But why does it hurt? Because my life doesn't align with the word of God. And so what do we do? Is it, is it okay? Okay. Guess, guess that's, that's life. You know, have a nice life. No, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I repent before you. I didn't know I had my preconceived notions about the sex and the Ouija boards and the the, uh, uh, the the crack and the meth and all these things and the dirty thoughts and, you know, conduct and this and that and the alcohol and the vodka and all these kinds of different things. And Lord, I didn't know at the time, but now I read your word and now I know, Lord, forgive me. I repent before you. You know how beautiful that is? To be cleaned up and to be clean and pure and a sweet aroma unto him and the eyes of the Lord, which a lot of times Christians think, oh, that's so scary. You know, the, the, the Lord, he's going to see me do this. He's going to see me do that. He's going to. What about when your deeds are righteous? What about when your deeds are good and he sees, wow, you know, all over the land, people have forgotten the Lord and the eyes of the Lord. Oh, look, there's my guy. Oh, look, there's my gal. You see, very important to understand that, yes, there is a, a pain to being confronted with truth. 
But when you and me abide in Christ, what happens is that truth doesn't hurt anymore because we're abiding in Christ. And it would have been so much easier in the case of Herodias. It would have been so much easier if Herodias repented and believed in Jesus. It would have been so much easier. But understand that hurt can either soften the heart or it can harden a heart. Now remember what's all what, what's also happening in the pneumos, in the spirit realm, what we study in Mark chapter 4 and chapter 5. Remember what's happening in the spirit realm where instead of truth softening her heart, truth is hardening her heart. And now Herodias, she wants to kill John the Baptist. She wants to kill John the Baptist. We see in verse 19 or in verse 18, John the Baptist just says, it's not lawful to have your brother's wife. And therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. Very interesting. Why not? Why not? She's the king's wife after all, which allots certain things that can work to her advantage. But she could not kill John the Baptist because of her husband. In verse 20, we see why. For Herod feared John. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man. And he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Very interesting what we see here. Very interesting what we see here. Because John the Baptist was seen as a, as a kook by the religious establishment. But with Herod, Herod knew John to be holy and just. And Herod protected John. Herod even heeded John and heard him gladly. And everything seems to be going good. Herod may even repent and believe in Jesus. In the pneumos, things are looking good. I mean, we look at verse 20. It's like, whoa, this is kind of nice. I mean, maybe Herod would accept Jesus. Maybe Herod would repent and believe in Jesus. But then we get a glimpse. A a little picture, a little picture of Satan's tactics. What does he do? He goes to the wife. He goes to the wife. And we see a heart in Herod that's maybe not jello, but it's not stone. Maybe it's balsa even. Maybe it's just, it's not jello, but it's, you know, softer than pine. And Satan, he goes to the pine heart. You see? He doesn't even go to the pine heart. He goes to the stone heart. He goes to the wife. And he uses the hardness of her heart. And he gets a doofer. He gets a doofer. He gets the wife and he gets the husband. And what does he do? He seduces. And instead of killing John right now, it's just prison. John is in prison. Remember, we've seen in the earlier verses that it was kind of like appeasing the wife. Okay, you know, Herod just straight up says, okay, let's let's, let's find John, arrest him, put him in prison. And things seem relatively okay, even still, because at least John's not dead. He's in prison. At least he's not dead. He can be released later down the road and the wife is appeased and things seem fine. But remember, Satan plays dirty. Very, very dirty. And we see here in verse 21. Then an opportune day came when Herod 
on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. Very interesting what we see here. A nice royal gala. Happy birthday to the king. The nobles come, and there's a feast, an opportune day. But for what? For what? And then we see here in verse 22 something interesting. And it, when Herodias' daughter, when her daughter, when Herodias' daughter herself came in, very interesting. So Herodias has a daughter. And so we have Horish mom who left Philip. We have Horish mom. What do you think her daughter is going to be like? What do you think her daughter is going to be like? So the daughter came into the royal gala, you know, happy birthday to the king. And we see in verse 22, when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. Wow. Some daughter. Some daughter. I don't want to get graphic, but what type of dance turns carnal men into putty? You see? I don't want to get graphic, but... It ain't no skip to my loo. So, daughter dances. Daughter dances. Number one, why even dance? Why why even dance? Why not just, you know, come in, have some cake, drink some juice, talk with the people, have some more cake. Why even go there? Why even dance? And don't forget, this is a broken home. Philip is still alive. And parents in broken homes, what happens is parents lose their ability to correct the kids. They lose the ability to correct the kids because the kids, they, hey, you're my stepmom. You can't correct me. Hey, you're my stepdad. You can't correct me. Or what happens is the biological parent from the broken home, you know, and the kid says, how can you correct me when you broke the family? You see, Satan fights dirty. He fights dirty. And so you have this daughter. She pleases Herod and the nobles who sat with him. And it's all done by her dance. And Herod is straight up turned into putty. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And we see here in verse 23. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Whoa. Now, don't forget, he's sitting with the nobles. Nice royal gala. Happy birthday, king. Meanwhile, John the Baptist, he's in prison. He's silenced. His message is no longer heard. His words are no longer reaching Herod. And understand that when a holy message is silenced, what happens is rot and decay. It's only a matter of time. Because today... Today, 2023 AD, look what's happening. Churches shut down, ministries shut down, ministries are silenced, and false ministries and false prophets, they're on the rise. They're on the rise. At the same time, you have these false ministries and false prophets. What do they say? Stay home and clean the toilets. Like and subscribe. Now, a little quick message for my European brothers and sisters. Major, major implications today. Major implications on you being able to access online ministries. Go to our website and go to the preparation area. There's a reason why we say store your oil. You see, very important for, 
for such a time as this, certain things are beginning to happen. So if you're if you're anywhere in the world, but certain things are happening in European countries where things are being shut down. And so if that's you, you're listening, you're in Europe, go to the preparation, go to our website, go to the preparation area. Very important. And so Herod here, you know, maybe if there was the ongoing influence of the words of John, maybe Herod, maybe he wouldn't have been seduced at that level. Maybe he could have just said to the daughter, hey, get out of here. Get out of here with that man. You know, go eat some cake. Get out of here. But oh, no. Just like Putty, she dances a whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Horish mom, horish daughter. And in verse 24, so she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Wow. You see, the Bible tells us what an opportune day it was. An opportune day came. And oh my goodness, what an opportune day it was for evil to fester. For holy words to be silenced, for decay to worsen. And the daughter didn't answer the king and say, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And the daughter didn't say, hey, give me a house, give me a car, give me an all expense paid vacation. No, the whorish daughter goes to whorish mom and the mom in whose heart the truth hit a nerve. And now Herodias has her opportunity. Give me the head of John the Baptist. Off with his head, you see. Satan plays dirty. He fights dirty. And in verse 25, immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And in verse 26, and the king was exceedingly sorry. Now remember, he considered John the Baptist to be just and holy. You see something like, it's almost like maybe Herod would have believed. Maybe he would have believed. And now we see something else. In the pneumos, we see what happens in a person's heart. Based on our studies in the previous chapters in the book of Mark. But at the same time, we see an outside influence still in the pneumos, but it's upon another person to influence another person. And what we're saying is Herodias. Herodias. Something beautiful. It's you, you look at John the Baptist and Herod, and it's like, wow, this is kind of, it's kind of nice. It kind of leaves the door open for hope. Like maybe Herod might believe in Jesus. And something's happening in the pneumos. Something beautiful is happening in the pneumos, in, in the heart of Herod. But then all of a sudden, boom, Satan capitalizes on the hardness of hearts. And he uses Herodias. You see? He plays dirty. He fights dirty. And Herod, he's sitting with his nobles. And so we see in verse 26 that the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, 
he did not want to refuse her. Now, look at the sequence of events that led to this. The sequence of events that led to this. Easily preventable. Easily preventable. But Satan is very patient. Very, very patient. Waiting for that opportune moment. Moving slowly and boom. You see how he works? And we see here in verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. Mission accomplished. Herodias wanted John dead. And now she has the platter with his head on it. Our beautiful, beautiful brother in the family of faith. I can't wait to meet him. I so can't wait to meet him. And we see here in verse 29. When his disciples heard it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. John had disciples. John had disciples. Don't forget in the other gospels, and we haven't necessarily studied this on in, in, in the book of Mark, but we mentioned it quite a bit and we studied it earlier. If you've been walking with us for a while, you might remember our studies to the book of Matthew. John had disciples and they asked him about Jesus. And John the Baptist is the one who told them, I must decrease and he must increase. Go to him. And so what happens is his disciples, they return to the corpse of beautiful, beautiful John. No head. No head. And they lay in a tomb. And we look at this and we read it. It's like, well, this is so tragic. And yes, it is. But understand, these events, these are going to return in the last days. And it's a depraved society. What they're going to do, they're going to demand the heads of those who are faithful to Jesus. These are things that are prophesied to happen. They're prophesied to happen. And a lot of times what happens with Christians today, oh, we don't have to worry about that because we're going to be raptured before that happens. Listen, I love you, but you're wrong. If you're a Christian and you believe we're going to be raptured before that happens, you're wrong. The Bible does not teach a pre-tribulation rapture. Go to the website and listen to those studies. Go to the prophecy area and listen to those studies. Very important. We're living in a time. It is not a time to play games with the Lord. Not to suggest that there ever was a time to play games with the Lord, but definitely now more than ever, do not play games with the Lord. Do not be lukewarm with the Lord. Be white hot. White hot with the Lord. On fire with the Lord. You see? And so understand what's happening here. You know, Jesus, he sent out the disciples. And then, you know, Mark, when he writes and records, he gives us a little meanwhile account of what happens with Brother John, John the Baptist. Very tragic. And so now we go back to the disciples, you know, the disciples who have been sent out, you know, to two vessels, you know, vessel one, vessel two together going out. And we have these six groups and they return to Jesus. Now, I'm so in love with Brother Mark, but the way he records, it's <laughs> it doesn't flow. It doesn't flow like the other gospels because, it's, you know, Jesus sends out the disciples and then like, you know, this tragedy with John the Baptist. And then like now we come back to the disciples, but that's how we record. And you know, you know, it. I love it. You know why? Because the Lord uses the Lord uses 
anybody. You know, we look at like the, the higher academia, higher academia. It's like, you know, how, how would, how would they compose, you know, if they were to say something, how would they compose? And then we look at Mark, it's kind of like, uh, like all over, all over the place a little bit, but I love it so much because it's like, wow, the Lord uses like, it's so beautiful to see like, wow, the eyes of the Lord is like, wow, a Mark, write a letter, write an account. And it's so beautiful. I love it. So you like it with, with, with Matthew, tax collector. People didn't like, you know, even still today, people don't like paying taxes. You know, people don't like talking to their to their tax person about, you know, paying this and paying that and all that. And that was Matthew. People didn't like the tax collectors back in the day and still don't like the tax collectors today. But the Lord says, hey, Matthew, walk with me. You see, follow me. And Matthew doesn't even think about it. He's like, boom, I'm out. Praise be to the Lord. And I love that so much because the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. And so you read Matthew or the book of Mark and it doesn't flow like, you know, some of the other gods. It doesn't flow like the like John's writings, you know, the gospel of John. It doesn't flow like Dr. Luke. But praise be to the Lord. You see Mark, it's like, okay, you see like, you know, the Lord calls to the disciples and like, you know, John the Baptist. And here we are, we're back to the disciples and they've been sent out. Vessel one, vessel two, going out, sent by the Lord. And we see, and you know, in groups of six. And so we see here in verse 30, then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And so another mission accomplished, but this is the better mission accomplished. Look at this war that rages, the war that rages, good and evil, God and Satan. Now, you sometimes people say, you know, they say, you know, I've read the end and in the end we win, but that's not what the Bible says. We read the end and in the end, God wins. God wins. You and me, we have a choice to make. Will we abide in him or not? And if the answer today is, will we abide in him? If the answer is yes, praise be to the Lord. But these are things that we have to do for every single day. And remember with Paul? Paul, he says, I don't, I don't count myself to have achieved. And he was an old man. I don't count myself to have achieved, he says, but I press forward. You see? I press forward. And praise be to the Lord because he teaches us. The Lord teaches us and says, Paul, write a letter. Peter, write a letter. Jude, write a letter. Mark, write this account. And Mark, he just writes this account. And so we continue here in, in verse 31. And Jesus, he says in verse 31, and he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there, for, for, for there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. Now, I want to say something to the laborers in the field. To the laborers in the field, this might resonate with you because you see here in verse 31, they didn't have time to eat and you might be a laborer and you don't have time to eat. You don't have a lot of time for anything, but rejoice, rejoice because you're in good company. You're in good company. Look at the disciples here. The Lord wants the disciples to have rest and he teaches how to have rest, you see, and rest, it's in him. Rest is in the Lord. Just like we say with love, you know, the world has an idea of what love looks like. But we, we read the Bible 
And the Lord teaches us about biblical love. You see, the Lord teaches us about a love that is pleasing to him. Just like with rest. The world has an idea of what rest looks like. But the Lord is the one who teaches us about resting in him. And so in verse 32, so they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. And so the disciples might be thinking, you know, some rest sounds kind of nice because they've been quite busy. They remember they they just come back. The Lord sent them out two by two and they come back. And so they depart to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. And we see in verse 33, but the multitude saw them departing and many knew him and and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities they arrived before them and came together to him now picture the disciples here you know finally able to get some rest they're on the boat the boat nears the land and then the multitudes are waiting for them and something i want to say again to the laborers in the field you're not going to have rest according to the flesh. You're not very little rest according to the flesh. But let me tell you something. And I tell you the truth. You will absolutely rejoice and have rest in the Lord. But the Lord teaches us through his word about rest in him and what that looks like. And so they're in a boat. They're in a boat. They arrive on land to be met by the multitude. And here in verse 34, and Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. And what we see here in verse 30 and verse 34 is a duality of works because the disciples and Jesus teach and understand that what is taught and it still applies today. What is taught must, must align to what Jesus says. Always, 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 always. What is taught must align to what the Bible says. And these are things that down the road, Jesus, he's going to tell the disciples, not here in Mark chapter 6, but down the road, he's going to tell the disciples, you know, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. Because remember, the servants, servants don't know what the master is doing and why the master is doing what the master is doing. Servants don't know, but friends do. And so Jesus down the road, Jesus is going to say to the disciples, hey, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends because friends don't wonder what the master is doing. You see, their intimacy gets closer and closer and closer. And in word, in deed, in conduct, what's happening is Jesus, he's teaching the disciples. And these are disciples and down the road where he's going to call them friends. I no longer call you disciples or no, no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. And down the road, these are men that are going to become apostles, apostles, except for one, except for one. And these 11 apostles they're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And let's say 11 apostles, that, that replacing happened. We're going to see that in the book of Acts, you know, when we get in the book of Acts, you know, Lord willing, when we get to the book of Acts, these are things that we're going to see empowering by the Holy Spirit through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember our studies in John's writings? In John's writings, old man John, old man John, remember? He ran very well. He ran very beautifully and he endured because here in Mark chapter 6, John, he's still in relative infancy, but he's learning. 
He's learning. He's learning how to shepherd from the good shepherd. And these are things that the disciples, when they become apostles, they look back and they're like, oh, that's what our Lord meant. That's what he meant. That's what he meant. And praise be to the Lord because they learn and they grow and they mature and they become deadly. You see, the good deadly. And this are, these are things that happens through intimacy with Jesus. And in verse 35, look what happens. When the day was far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place and the hour and, 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 and already the hour is late. Send them away in verse 36. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. Now, no disrespect to the disciples. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. But we can we, we see the humanity in this. We see human nature in this because they're probably tired. They're probably very tired. And it's getting late and okay, time to wrap up. You know, the people got to eat and so send them away. You know, we, we, we and, 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 and we see this, we can understand it. And the disciples, what happens is they bring up very, very valid concerns, very, very real issues, very real solutions. And it's true that this is one course of action, what they recommend. I mean, you know, when, when, when the disciples come to Jesus in verse 35, and they, this is a deserted place, the hour is late, and send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread because, for they have nothing to eat. So, you know, remember, they're in a deserted place, so no cars. So everybody's, everybody's walking. So they got to go to the nearby place, go to the, you know, the stores, marketplace nearby, buy some fruit, buy some bread, buy, you know, where they got, whatever they got to eat. And they bring up very, very, valid issues to Jesus. Very, very valid solutions. And when I say valid here, it's like very real. These are real issues, real matters, and they bring up real solutions. And it's very true that this could be a solution. This could be a course of action, what, what they're saying to do. But what Jesus is doing He's showing them something more narrow, something better. And it's something that's in accordance to his will. And it's the narrow path. And he's teaching them. And in verse 37, but he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. <laughs> you give them something to eat, he says. Now, the disciples, at this moment when Jesus says, you give them something to eat, they're confronted with their own logic and intellect. Because, remember, they're bringing up very valid issues, very valid concerns. You know, do we have the funds? Do we have, the, do, do we, are we going to have enough food? You know, we're, we're tired. And by their own logic and intellect, they cite very real issues, very real matters. And Jesus says straight up, you give them food. And look how they answer. And they said to him, Shall we go and, and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Now, in their logic and intellect, they cite a solution to the matter. Food for the masses. Food for the masses. And if all they had combined was 200 denarii, remember, we're in a deserted area now. You know, does that mean that the disciples, they got to 
go into town and buy a bunch of bread and everybody, everybody, everybody has to eat crumbs because there's a lot of people. Now, this is absolutely a solution to the matter in the ways of Adam, in the ways of the flesh, in the ways of logic, in the ways of intellect. This is absolutely a solution. And remember, in the earlier verses, we've already seen what logic and intellect can cause in a person, in a people, in a town, where in Nazareth, no mighty works. We've already seen what logic and intellect can cause. And so something that was withheld in synagogue, it's about to be revealed in this deserted place. See, what was withheld in synagogue is about to be revealed in this deserted place. In verse 38, but he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. So five loaves, two fish, not a lot for the multitudes. In verse 39, then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. Now, you know what I love about this? The disciples, they have very valid issues that they bring up. And they have a very real solution. And... They have an idea of what needs to be done and Jesus confronts their logic and intellect with a better way. But then what happens, and it's so beautiful, they do what Jesus says. You see? No one says here like what happened in Nazareth. No one says, oh, but he's just a carpenter. Nobody says that. Nobody says that. They have their logic. They have their intellect Yes, but they obey the Lord. They obey the Lord. And understand that logic and intellect, when properly placed, they aren't necessarily a bad thing. You see, they can never be on the throne. And that's the biggie. They can never be on the throne. Logic and intellect must be dethroned. Must be dethroned. You see? And it's Jesus who must sit on the throne of our hearts. Always. That's something that didn't happen in synagogue. Because they applied their logic, they applied their intellect, and look at Nazareth. No mighty works. And here, the disciples, very real Issues, very real solutions, except showing them the narrow narrow way, what happens in obedience to what Jesus tells them. What they have to do is they have to take their logic, they have to take their intellect and throw it out the window. You see? In obedience to what the Lord says. Now, in the synagogue and with the disciples, we see both logic and intellect. And in synagogue, they were unwilling to dethrone intellect. They were unwilling to do that, and there was no mighty works. But with the disciples, they did dethrone intellect, and they see mighty works. They do mighty works, and deeper truths are revealed. And this is a huge problem with the intellectual Christian today. The very huge problem. And we see in Nazareth, no mighty works. 
And it's very important to understand when we bring up these matters of other denominations, it's not for the sake of winning an argument. It's not to argue at all, but it's to present these doctrines and measure them to what the Bible says and see how the doctrines of men present very serious dangers to unsuspecting believers. Very important. Very, very important. Don't forget the, the Galatian saints. The Galatian saints were straight up leaving Jesus to another gospel. And Paul wrote them a letter and says, I'm blown away, you guys. He says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from Jesus. And what happened in Galatia is they put up with the men who brought in the other doctrines. They put up with it. And it was so heavy. It was, it was not just heavy, it was so seductive and tricky that even Peter got caught up in it. You see, even Peter got caught up in it. And Paul had to correct Peter publicly. And so Jesus here, he tells the disciples to have the people here in Mark 6, hey, tell them to sit in groups on the green grass. And the disciples, they obey him. They had their idea. Okay, you know, we got, you know, hey, you know, Jesus, you know, send the people away. It's late and they got to buy their food. And Jesus says, hey, you feed them. Okay, do we take this money? We go buy bread and, you know, do, do we break it up in little pieces so all the multitudes can eat? So they have their idea using their logic. They have this idea of what needs to be done. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, hey, have them sit on the green grass in groups. And in verse 40, so they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. In verse 41. And we had taken the, the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them and the two fish he divided among them all so they all ate and were filled now this isn't portioned in rations you know the people are sharing crumbs that's not what happens no they all ate and they were all filled you see praise be to the lord what what is happening here you see what what, what didn't happen in nazareth look where it's happening Look where it's happening in the deserted place here. In verse 43, and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Whoa. Whoa. Notice what we see here. There's no financial expenditure. There's, you know, 200 denarius. What the disciples thought, oh, we got to spend this, you know, 200 and, and, and go buy some bread. No, that didn't happen. There's no going down to town to buy food. But what we see is this. Jesus, faith, and obedience. You see? The very things that Brother James writes to us about. The package deal. You see? Remember the package deal? Faith and obedience working together. Inseparable. And we see the very thing that Brother James writes to us in the book of James. We see that here in Mark chapter 6. No mighty work in Nazareth. But here we are in the deserted place. And we know why it wasn't done in Nazareth. Where Jesus marveled at their unbelief. But understand that the unbelief in synagogue. It was a result of their learnedness. You see. What they presumed to be the smarts. You see. 
And we see here in verse 45, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him on the other side to Bethsaida while he went, while he sent the multitude away. And when he sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. So we see this dispersing where the disciples are on the water and, you know, they're in the boat, they're on the water, the multitudes are sent away and Jesus goes to pray on the mountain. In verse 47, now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he alone was on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. Now remember, inside the boat, you have experienced fishermen, experienced fishermen. They're well, they're acclimated to the water and the weather and they're straining. And they're straining for a while because evening came and at the fourth watch of the night, something happens. Fourth watch, it's about 3 a.m. The nights were divided into segments for time references. That was in the early day, that's what happened. You know, that's, you know, second watch of the night, third watch of the night. But here at the fourth watch, about 3 a.m., something happens. We see here in verse 48, now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed by and would have passed them by. They're in the boat. There is a storm. And Jesus straight up walking on water. And we see what happens here in verse 49. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. Now Matthew's account, we're in the book of Mark, but Matthew's account says they were straight up terrified. Terrified. They thought it was a ghost and they were scared. And we see here in Mark chapter 6 and verse 50, they saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer. It is I do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. You would think you would think the softest of hearts would be with the disciples. After all they've seen, all they've done, after being sent out, you would think they would have the softest hearts. And this matter of water and being without Jesus, and we see the collective heart being hardened because verse 25 says, because their heart, not hearts, their heart was hardened. We see the collective heart being hardened. And as a result, there was no understanding about the loaves. We see in verse 52, they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. You see, but remember what happened with the loaves. It was a clash of intellect and faith, a clash. And through that clash, we see, wow, their heart became hard because of that. And this is one of the most beautiful things with children that we see with children's ministries to teach children the Bible and instant belief. Instantly, you talk to a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, even early, you know, the four-year-old, three-year-old, two-year-old, and, you know, what they can, they can hear and grasp and understand. It's like, well, you talk to a child, you know, eight years old, seven years old. It's like, whoa, they, then instant belief. They don't have the baggage of intellect, but adults, with adults, there's the greater challenge because now with adults, they do have the baggage of intellect and logic and intellect and logic can be very detrimental to the Christian. Why? 
because it causes blindness. It causes the hard heart. It causes the hard heart. And the hard heart is the path of wickedness. And that, you know, because it, the path of wickedness, because that's how hearts are become stone. We don't want that. We want soft. We want hearts to be softer than softest jello. Remember our prior studies? And that's the danger behind the, the logic and intellect. There's nothing wrong with intellect and logic, but it must be dethroned. It can never sit on the throne of our hearts. Never, ever, ever. It can never sit on the throne of our hearts. Because that's where Jesus sits. You see? But where logic comes in, where intellect comes in, and when it's on the throne of our hearts, all of a sudden it interferes with things of faith. And that's when blindness sets in. There was a time, there was a time when I taught scripture, we had Bible study and I taught to both children and men, you know, on, 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 on one day in one setting, it was, you know, children. And then on another day in another setting, it was men, adult males. And with the men, it broke my heart because we, we studied exactly the same and, you know, wording was changed a little bit, you know, but we studied the exact same thing. And, and when we said wording was changed, it wasn't like biblical wording. It was like, you know, you know, when we would explain certain things, it was like, you know, so for, so for a child to understand. And so the same exact thing, same exact passages. And in the children, it was so beautiful because boom, like their eyes were like saucers. They hear and it's like, wow, you know, wow, the Lord is so awesome. Jesus is so awesome. We love the Lord. And it's, it was so beautiful. But then with the men, my heart was broken. My heart was hurting, not by anything they did per se, but my heart was hurting because biblical truth with the adults, adult males, the adults had the carnal filter of their own logic and their own intellect. You see? Very important to understand that there's nothing wrong to have intellect. There's nothing wrong to have logic, but it can never sit on the throne. Never, never, ever, ever. Now, turn with me really quick to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. And in Matthew 14, we see Matthew's account and the disciples, they're scared and they think Jesus is a ghost. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. And in Matthew 14 and verse 28, and Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down on the, out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, remember, it's about three in the morning. We're in the middle of the water here. And Jesus is showing something just to the disciples, just to the disciples. We're not in the synagogue. We're not with the multitude. We're in a tiny bubble. And Peter, he's straight up walking on water. And in verse 30, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. Now, Jesus isn't going to let Peter drown, you know. He, he, you would think that Jesus might say something, you know, I got you, don't worry, you know. But there's a little chastisement. We see here in verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? 
And yes, there's this storm here in the water, but there's another storm. There's another storm in the pneumos, in the spirit realm. And this is a storm and the war that rages. And it has everything to do with faith. You see? And what Satan wants to do with holy seeds, holy seeds inside of all of us. And Satan, he wants to destroy them. And we see, remember our study in, about the seeds and the parable with the seeds? Where, you know, Satan, he goes into the heart to take away that seed. Number one, why does Satan have access to that heart? Very important to understand. And you say, wait a second, look at Herod. Well, Satan doesn't have access to that heart. Yeah, but he does with the wife. And he uses the wife. Horish wife. And he uses Horish daughter. Why? Remember, he's very patient. And we start to see this landscape of warfare. And we start to see in this landscape, we start to see certain tactics, evil tactics, satanic things, demonic things, things in the pneumos. And remember the warnings that we had in our studies through the epistle? When you know, you're open to the pneumos, it means you're open to the pneumos. And being open to the pneumos, it's very, very dangerous. Very, very dangerous because a person is open to the spirit realm. That's why, you know, I had a conversation the other day, you know, not too long ago, but, you know, a person who was, you know, does the uh, uh, psychedelics, psychedelics. And we had a long conversation and he's starting to understand certain things about the pneumos because he's absolutely open to the spirit realm. He's open to the pneumos. But without the covering of Jesus, it's very, very dangerous. It's very important to understand when a person is open to the pneumos, it's very dangerous. It can be very, very wicked, very, very evil because you're open to the spirit realm. But then at the same time, when there's the covering of Jesus Christ and a person is abiding in Christ. Remember the demons with the sons of Siva? Or the, 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 the demon, and the demon says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. But who in the world are you? You see? And they attempted to use the name of Jesus, but they lost in that fight. Because they were open to the pneumos, but for them, it was very dangerous. They were defeated, you see? And Paul, he was open to the pneumos, but he's abiding in Christ, you see? These are things that Satan knows, the demons know. They know all about formula. They know all about formula. And they could look at, you know, Satan, he could look at Hymenaeus and Alexander and say, wow, look, you know, they appeal to the flesh. Hey, Christians, why don't you go submit to Alexander? Why don't you go submit yourself to Hymenaeus? You know, you're not going to, you're not going to have the, the guilt trip like you do with Paul. You're not going to have the guilt trip when, when, when James says, you know, adulterers and adulteresses. Go to these guys. They're going to take real good care of you. You see? But yet the Lord teaches us. Very, very special. Very, very beautiful. Very, very holy blueprints. Blueprints. The narrow path. Wide is the way that leads to hell and leads to destruction. But narrow is the way. You see? And Satan, he wants to destroy these holy seeds inside of all of us. And some people, he can go right into their heart. Some people, he can't get in their heart. But he chips away. He chips away. 
Oh, yeah, go, go submit yourself to this pastor over here. You're going to be on milk forever. And what happens in the course of time? That's how a person falls away. Remember our study? Go back and listen to our study. Mark chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And here we are in chapter 6. Get yourself caught up. Very important to understand. And with Herod, like, wow, Herod, he's, he's like on the verge of being a believer. These are very beautiful things that we see in Herod, what's happening in the Numos. But then all of a sudden you see Satan, he can't get the heart. And what does he do? Boom, he uses the wife. He uses the whorish daughter. He uses the wife, hey, put him in prison. You see? And he uses the daughter, all of a sudden, the whorish daughter, instead of walking into the room and, hey, you know, can I have some cake? Can I have some juice? And, you know, hey, how you doing? No. What does she do? She does her dance. You see? Turning the men into putty. Turning Herod into putty. Very important to understand. And Satan, he knows exactly where he's going. He knows he's going to the lake of fire. And the problem, he wants to take people with him. He wants to take you and me with him. You see? The disciples aren't immune to this. As apostles, they're still not immune to this. Because remember, Peter with the Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Peter, even he was seduced by the servants of Satan who presented themselves as ministers of righteousness. Remember? Don't forget, Satan, he's a fisherman too. And a lot of times people think church, it's all about, you know, hey, let's get together, let's sing Kumbaya, nice little social club. Let's get together and feel nice and happy. Not at all. You know what church is? When you read the Bible, you know what church is? It's straight up warrior training. Warrior training. Equipping and edifying the saints. That's what the Bible says of churches. But let me ask a question. Where in the world are the pastors? Where in the world is Abuda Abuda Mishkan? You're wondering what that is? Go and listen to our study of Leviticus. You'll understand. Old Testament, Leviticus. Where in the world are the teachers? Where are the warriors? You see? Because the Bible tells us that the harvest is plentiful. The Bible says, go out and make disciples. The Bible says, let the married be as though unmarried so that we can serve the Lord. And meanwhile, you have the pastors and women ministry leaders. They say, hey, women, stay home, clean the toilets. Like and subscribe. You see? Apostasy is prophesied. It's going to happen. And it's happening already. But when you understand formula, you understand that it happens for a reason and you know why. You see? The formula is wrong. Whether you see apostasy, wrong formula. It's only a matter of time. Wrong formula, it's only a matter of time. And where the formula is right, that's where we see the remnant. So let's go back to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. They're all in the boat together. They're all in the boat together. In Mark chapter 6, in verse 53. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through that whole surrounding region and began to carry up carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was 
Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. You see, no mighty works in Nazareth, and we know why. In Gennesaret and the surrounding areas, mighty works. With the tiny bubble among the disciples, great and mighty works. But with an even tinier bubble, remember our study last week with Peter, James, and John? Even death has no sting. And he showed that to the tiny, tiny bubble. The more the depth, the smaller the bubble. That's the remnant the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful people of the way, a remnant of these last days. God bless you. I love you.